Hello Gamer Nation, GM Hooley here. Tonight's episode of the Forge, a Genesis RPG podcast, is brought to you by the generous donations of Thea Fattel, Jason Holloway and David Morris, as well as all of our other amazing Patreon supporters. If you would like to become part of the Forge community, you can learn more at patreon.com forward slash Forge Genesis. And for as little as $2 a month, you can help support this very podcast in continuing to provide you with amazing content. Thank you to all of our fans for reblogging, retweeting, sharing our latest episodes, along with those who offer support and encouragement for this podcast. It really is appreciated by both Chris and myself. For now, however, let's get on with the show. Game Nation and welcome to The Forge, a Genesis RPG podcast covering everything that you need to know about the latest and greatest from Fantasy Flight Games, Genesis Foundry and the Genesis role-playing game. I'm your host, GM Hooley, and tonight we have a very special episode where we are playing the roles of omnipotent beings as we discuss the ins and outs of creating creatures and people beyond imagination. Or maybe not just people, but certainly adversaries for Genesis. And we'll be conducting this experiment on the furnace with an amazing special guest coming to us in pristine condition to give us a hand, particularly when talking about NPC power levels. It's none other than the man, the myth, the legend, Keith Cabell. But before all of that, let me introduce you to the guy whose country is still being forced to play endless games of Wheel of Misfortune, apparently. It's GM Chris. Chris, how you doing? <laughs> Oh, I'm here, man. I'm here. Uh, if it's if we're, if we're not getting burned or battered by hurricanes, it's it's something else, man. It's something <laughs> it's a else. Nightmare. <laughs> it's a nightmare. Which is why I enjoy this show. It's 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 yeah. escapism. Yeah. It's escapism in a, in a in a totally healthy way. I'm sure. Mm, um, <laughs> <laughs> Some people may say otherwise about my passion, but uh. <laughs> ah, well, well, yeah, you know, you know. Um, I'm really excited for the show tonight, uh, but mm. only I, I, you know, it's one of those things that I, I noticed you only teased the furnace. Are we not going to have like another secondary segment like we normally do? Um, no, we're not, because um, I'm suspecting that this will go on for quite a lengthy period of time. Um, we'll see how things go, <laughs> but um, yeah, we've, we're jamming a lot into the furnace tonight, so we are going to avoid that. We'll still do our announcements, and uh, if we have time, we'll answer a, a couple of listener questions, uh, but uh, it's just going to be the one big boy tonight, so yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and and <laughs> honestly, Gamer Nation, we were like, I mean, I, th- I think the furnace show notes clock in right at around 20 pages. And yeah. Yeah, <laughs> we we seriously talked about splitting it up into two discussions, but like when you, there's it's so integral what we're going to be going through. It's so yeah. integral. It, we just yeah, we figured we would just make this an uh, an extra long furnace, and uh, 
and we'll see how we'll see how it goes. But I'm excited. <laughs> well, I mean, Keith wrote a lot of the material for the EPG uh, <laughs> exactly. with our level, so no doubt there's going to be a few things that uh, we're going to learn along the way. So, uh, so I looking cannot, forward, looking forward. I cannot wait. Yep, I cannot absolutely. wait. Mm. And speaking of awards. Uh, we we weren't we we weren't we weren't were we? <laughs> no, but that just gives us even more reasons to get us and everyone else talking about the forthcoming Forge Awards. Oh, the first annual Forgies. Good call, Huli. <laughs> and that's right, Gamer Nation. Nominations are happening right now for the Forge Podcast Forge Awards, which honors the best Foundry products released within the Foundry's first year. Anyone can nominate, uh, but only Huli, myself, and our amazing patrons can vote. Once the nominations are in, uh, and there have been certainly some great nominations like Ready Fight by our special guest who will be joining us later in the show, along with mm-hmm. Salvage um, mm. uh, uh, by by um, the amazing Jared Matthew. And but yeah. yeah, you know we've had a lot of great nominations. But rather than banter on about who's been nominated thus far, Scott Zumwalt as well, uh, 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 <laughs> Chris Markham. Uh, uh, okay. Um, <laughs> oh, excuse me. Oh, gosh. I. Oh, God. <laughs> Studio 404. I. <laughs> oh, oh, mm, mm. That's a terrible cough there. Mm. It's terrible. You might have, so, to, yeah. get, you uh, have to get tested. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, God. Oh. Uh, but, you know, rather than banter on about, about the nominations that have happened, they're still happening. Tell me more about the nomination process, man. Absolutely. Now, we've got public nomination awards uh, in four categories, best adventure, best setting, best general supplement, and best layout and design. But we've also got the big one, which is best product. Um, Now, if there's a product on the foundry that was released between July 31st, 2019 and July 31st of 2020, you can nominate it. Just email us at forgegenesis at d20radio.com with the subject of Forge Award nomination. Tell us in your email why you want to nominate the product and for which category. And you can find more descriptions on what those categories actually mean at our website at forgegenesis.com. Now, the nomination period closes exactly at midnight on the 30th of September, 2020. And as people keep on reminding me, what time zone? We don't care. Um, (laughs) Wherever it's going to be midnight on the 30th of September last, that's the place that you need to look for. So it's probably some small little country somewhere. Somewhere. um, Somewhere. (laughs) Yes, yes. Maybe out of the the island somewhere in the Pacific, probably. Uh, Yes, most likely. Um. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Soon after that, um, uh, voting will commence for each category among the hosts and our Patreon subscribers, as Huli mentioned before. Mm. There are several rules that you can read on ForgeGenesis.com, uh, with the main one being that you cannot vote for your own product or a product you were involved in the development of. Uh, very mm-hmm. important rule for us. In other words, apart from playtestings, if your name appears on the credits page. Um, additionally, and, and in the interest of fairness, both Huli and I have recused any products that we have created or helped develop from the nomination process um it's just it's just not fair um so so there so there we go and it's also worth noting when it comes to nominations um the the best product is not something that can actually be nominated and we we, we've talked about this in prior awards announcements on prior episodes but but best product or product of the year all all products submitted are nominated automatically Mm -hmm. and it, it is an award that will be voted on by specifically 
the individuals who have contributed a product to the foundry. So it is a, yep. a an award from your peers to you. So very, very excited for that. And uh, after all of the votes are tallied, we will announce the winners by the end of October in a special not-to-be-missed show where we'll have some special guests on to talk about their experiences on the foundry and Genesis generally since its release. This is going to be good. Ah. Oh. And don't forget, guys, those products that win will get a shiny Digital Forge Award 2020 winner badge to slap on their applicable product, um, along with some other spiffy swag we have prepared as well. And as Huli mentioned before, head on over to ForgeGenesis.com for more information and get those nominations in. Yes, get them in. (laughs) (laughs) This is going to be great. Uh, Look, I can't wait to have that award ceremony. I think that's going to be some interesting developments there. And, um, you know, hopefully... Um, people as they're developing their their new foundry products are also taking those uh, categories into consideration. So hopefully for next year that uh, they'll get nominated themselves. Um, so yeah, I can't wait. Well, Holy, mm. I think it's time that we talk about some of that delicious foundry content. Should we get into it? Absolutely. So let's take a look at the latest releases since our last episode in Stoking the Fire. Stoking the Fire. And welcome to Stoking the Fire, a segment dedicated to letting you know all there is to know about the releases from the Genesis Foundry and the Genesis role-playing game. But first, Chris, would you like to tell us about the D20 Radio Podcast of the Week? Uh, most certainly. Um, or should I do? Should, should I try my Australian accent? Um, Go on. <laughs> <coughs> all right. Our podcast of the week is the Shared Sagas Podcast. Uh, join our crew of Aussie role players who, after concluding their venture, I can't do it. I just can't do it. Um, <laughs> it was, was a good little, effort, though. Was it good effort? Was it a good? Was it good effort? It was a good effort. No, really, though. Like shared sagas podcast, fantastic show. Um, group of Aussie role players. Um, actually, they they just concluded their venture into D and D fifth edition and a bunch of one shots mm-hmm. and mini campaigns, and they yeah. have moved on to start exploring <laughs> the Star Wars RPG by Fantasy Flight Games. Um, <laughs> oh, in their newest episode, number sixty one, the troubleshooters continue their infiltration of the Imperial Governor Space Station in an attempt to steal the precious artifact they desperately need. Uh, mm-hmm. So join them. GM Tom, Nadia, Ben, Mark, Nick, and Sam as they explore the galaxy in Edge of the Empire. It's such an entertaining crew to listen to. Great actual play. And I'm Mm -hmm. thrilled that they are running narrative dice. So go, you should be thrilled (laughs) too. Go and check it out. You can find this and more amazing gaming and geekery podcasts right now over at d20radio.com. And after you've given this fantastic podcast a listen, make sure you also check out the amazing blog articles over at d20radio.com. And speaking of the interwebs, why not head over to the Genesis Foundry at drivethroughrpg.com where you can find the latest and greatest Foundry releases for the Genesis RPG. And this week has sent a uh, has seen a bit of a steady number of releases. Uh, so what's our first one, Chris? Oh, the machine himself, Chris Markham, is back with legendary locations of Manara. Manara is filled with dangerous locations, awe-inspiring, unique places. From the Black Citadel of Lovar, the founder of the Uthuk Yilan, to the Den of Thieves in Al-Kalim. This book details 15 different unique locations. Um, each location is fully described, along with unique qualities of the place, the types of foes the PCs may encounter. But what's really cool is the book, in addition to the locations, features puzzles magical qualities, and of course, a few new adversaries. 
Um, each locale has a basis in Terranoth lore uh, throughout all Terranoth you know, products that take place in Minara, um, board games to you. And it takes exciting locations from a mere reference in a, in, in a game to a, or a book to a fully detailed area to just plop straight into your campaign. Um, great quality, as Markham usually does. And, and he's doing this a lot, as we'll see with his products now. He's also including downloadable adversary cards. Um, with the product, and and there are six of them in this as well, uh, which is pretty good for a three dollar price point. If I don't say so myself, not wrong. And I really hope he he continues with this style of product. I know that a lot of yeah. I, we rave on about his content a lot uh, because there is so much of it. Um, but this sort of this thing is really really useful for um, uh, for grabbing a locale that you can be using in an adventure or whatever else of your own design, uh, and really start to build on it. And it gives some really good meat to to do that with um i'm i think everybody knows that i'm a big lover of alkalim uh so to have den of thieves in there as well is uh, is pretty cool let me tell you so uh, absolutely fantastic um so our next title is secrets of the crucible adversary card template uh by our wonderful friend rpg narco now this, yay, Roy. Um, now, this supplement is a professionally designed adversary card template, as he has done for the other settings, as well as uh, the, the generic Genesis setting, um, where he's given a template for the latest RPG setting from FFG, which is Keyforge Secrets of the Crucible. Uh, and the selling point here is that um, only Acrobat reader so that's adobe acrobat reader is required you don't need any special software other than the free downloadable acrobat reader to be able to use this product which is love fantastic that. love it love it and it's uh, it's only 399 as well um it's uh, you know for for a template it may seem expensive but if you're doing a lot of adversary cards and, and you're a bit like me and and i love using adversary cards uh it's well and truly worth it uh and and he has gone to a lot of trouble uh, to to get all the artwork right and get the usability right, which is fantastic too. So, it, it, there is some skill in getting it to be a good looking form fillable in Reader. Um, yep. That's that's not easy to do. So very no, cool. Absolutely. And next up, we have um, uh, from Gasp uh, Adventures in Adventures in Island Visions in Ember <laughs> uh, from Micah Shalom Kesselman. Uh, welcome to Island. It's full of amber, but just watch out for the dis and the sanctum <laughs> Um Also, there's those crazy inspired monks wandering about. And I think you keep over there, City Soft Flying Saucer, once. Also, don't let me catch you trying to follow me to my sifts. I'll blast you where you stand. Sorry, did you want something? Uh, <laughs> great blurb. Um, Adventures in Island, Visions of Amber is is the very first uh, Golem's Adventure Seed Packet, uh, or GASP, uh, for the Keyforge setting, and is interested uh, intended to be used with the Secret to the Crucible campaign setting supplement, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, now in this GASP, because uh, this is, uh, I think, have they done other, uh, this, is like, this is like the second? Yeah, this is the second product, with the first one being Golem's itself. Yeah, we've talked about golems. Yeah, and it's and it's huge. Well, this is the first sort of add-on uh, where it's an adventure basically set using those rules. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, and he calls really them cool. these these seed packets, the golems adventure yeah. seed packets or gasps. Yeah, yeah um, exactly. Yeah, and so this is like the first one, which is intriguing. Mm. Um, but but inside there there's these this detailed region of the crucible um, for mm. Keyforge fans with 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 unique adversaries, um, four of which actually have entirely unique custom art. Um, mm-hmm. With you know your 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 area of interest descriptions, your maps, your adventure hooks, 
a whole lot more. Um, mm. And and in Island, which is just terrifying. Um, <laughs> um, and and these gasps are like designed from the ground up to be to be compatible with the Golems framework, like you said. Mm. Mm. Um, but it is also just fully functional entirely by itself. Um, yeah. So that's yeah. extremely cool. Um, at a price mm. of two fifty, definitely worth checking out. Definitely mm. worth checking out. Yep. But so is the next one, and, and a name I was glad to finally see a, get a product on the Foundry again. It's, it's been a while. Yeah, absolutely. It's been a while. So it's Favors of the Crucible, Genesis Keyforge, by our friend of the podcast, Scott Zumwalt. Now, Favors of the Crucible brings in the favor economy mechanics from Android Shadow of the Beanstalk and brings it across straight into Keyforge Secrets of the Crucible, which is a very cool idea. Uh, this supplement contains example favors for all the factions, as well as new talents for characters to gain favors and new career skills. Uh, now, the favor economy from Shadow of the Beanstalk is a fantastic campaign element, which, um, you know, I've, it's probably out of all of the settings that I've done thus far, is probably my favorite mechanic yeah. uh, because it's very similar to Obligation. Um, but in my opinion, a little bit better than Obligation uh, from uh, from Star Wars. I agree. Um, and it's thrilling and really, really quite sensible to uh, to see it brought into Keyforge because it makes total sense. Um, excellent and beautiful work um, by Scott, as usual, uh, and it's only $1.95, so well and truly worth uh, the price of admission. Um, mm-hmm. I would be using this in every Keyforge uh, campaign that I would run, definitely. Uh, absolutely absolutely well done scott Mm. um and coming back at us again uh the machine markham (laughs) mr chris markham comes at us with the unrelenting uthuk (laughs) (laughs) so the unrelenting uthuk is a supplement for bringing the uthuk yalan uh from minara lore to life in your campaigns um, obviously in Terranoth. Uh, you know, it's designed to teach more about those these these storied demonic raiders of the Rue Steps. And in Markham's style, this supplement is is told from the perspective of the heroine Tatiana. Okay. Um, or it also lets you flip the script and actually play as Uthuk characters. Um, you can become uh, they have they have all, all kinds of you know, a ferocious berserker um, or a fearless blood harvester, uh, a viper legion archer, or or even fly through the air as a doom glider. <laughs> right, that's um, cool. Uh, he's even got demonic magics in there uh, of the blood sisters, which is part of that lore, um, or the ability also to become a bone witch, which actually is really freaking creepy. They like manipulate others' biology. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy. Uh, it's a great supplement. It really, I mean, I, I love, I love the creativity of it. It really also most importantly expands the Terranoth lore for you fans into your games. Um, it's got two brand new Uthic archetypes, six new Uthic careers, Uthic equipment and the PC nemesis. There's uh, 10 new Uthic adversaries with, as he does a dozen printable adversary cards. Um, and because of the demonic lore, that demonology aspect is a huge part of Uthuk lore in, in Minara. He's got mechanics for summoning demons mm. as well as demonic variations and abilities and weaknesses um, for $2.50. It's a really cool supplement. Yeah. I'd actually like to get Chris on at some stage to talk about uh, those specific rules. Cause I really, really enjoyed them. Uh, yeah. I th- think that, um, yeah, it's just a, yeah, I won't talk more about it now, but certainly when we uh, when we get him on, and I'm sure that he'd be happy to come on uh, mm-hmm. to talk about that. But uh, but anyway, our last one is New Angeles Tour Guide by Kyle Sharp. 
Now, uh, it's a first publication from Kyle, and, and this title was was also giving uh, a helping production hand by Scott Zumwalt, and it looks like a really great addition for fans of Android. And I've I've really sort of taken a good look at this, and it's great. Yeah. I cannot. It's amazing. So the blurb reads, whether new to the city or a lifelong resident, the New Angeles Tour Guide has something for everyone. This supplement is for GMs and PCs alike to more easily navigate the mega cities of New Angeles. It's got some really interesting product choices like mechanics choices in here as well. Um, and each page covers one district or location detailing a ton of information. Uh, like a short description of what makes the, the district unique, points of interest such as civil landmarks, residential neighbourhoods, or commercial and industrial parks. There's even item rarity modifiers, which is a, this new rule, which uh, you know I've always had in, uh, in Star Wars, uh, and I know that he's obviously brought it into here because it makes sense. If you're a bit of a wristy, obviously things might be a little bit higher, and the slums, depending on what you're buying, it's going to be a little bit less. Uh, so it's absolutely fantastic there. Um, and it's even got a cost of living chart that shows what it costs to live at a certain social tier for a given period of time, uh, which I had a, a great discussion with him when he was developing this. Uh, so it's, uh, it's really well done. Uh, it's, it's a, it's a resource that I think everyone who plays, uh, Android should go out and purchase. And it's only $3.99. Really good value. Uh, so definitely go and check those out. Um, great products this week, and you can find all of them and so much more fantastic Genesis Foundry content over at drivethroughrpg.com by simply performing a search using the words Genesis Foundry. It's just the place for people to browse the catalog to check out what they can vote on for the Forge Awards. <laughs> so again, just a gentle, not-so-subtle reminder to get those nominations in. And since we're talking... About the Forge Awards, remember, listeners, that only Patreon subscribers of the Forge podcast can actually vote on those nominations. So why not jump over and become a supporter of the Forge? Join our Patreon right now. I really think they should, Chris. Now, listeners, for as little as $2 a month, you can gain access to our dedicated Discord server where you can interact with other fellow Smiths while higher tiers provide priority for your game and rules questions, special in-show recognitions, that you would have heard at the top of the episode and even more special monthly get-togethers with either Chris or myself to discuss your Foundry product, campaign, games, or anything else you want. Uh, we'll even come and do your washing. We'll, uh, we'll what? Okay. No washing? <laughs> no, no washing. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> I probably have, have overcommitted then. Um, but And secondly, the commit would be pretty ordinary anyway. But, <laughs> but seriously, no matter what, anything you can spare to show your support is appreciated. And each of your donations helped podcast directly so we can continue providing you with the excellent regular Genesis RPG content. So join the Forge community by becoming a supporter at patreon.com forward slash Forge Genesis. Okay, Chris, we've got our massive topic, as we talked about before, to uh, to cover on tonight's show. So what do you say we bring in our special guest and get into some adversarial action? Sounds like a plan, Huli. I'm eager. Let's get into it on The Furnace. The Furnace. 
And welcome to The Furnace, the segment where we take a deep dive into a topic concerning custom creations using the Genesis role-playing game. Now, in recent episodes, we've covered a lot of mechanics to the game with deep dives into using magic and vehicles in your games, showing you the tips and tricks to making the most of your Foundry products and, of course, your home games. But one thing that we've not spent a lot of time on are NPCs which is the backbone of a truly memorable adventure or an encounter. So after several listener requests, along with our desire to tackle the creation and use of NPCs in your game or Genesis Foundry product, we've decided to do exactly that by looking at what makes good NPCs. We'll be discussing the rules that govern the use of them, how to make them memorable to your players, along with discussing the latest rules about creating them more easily and how to create and calculate their power levels. A topic first introduced in the Expanded Player's Guide. Now, this is a big topic, and, and both mm. Huli and myself, we felt we just couldn't do it justice with just the two of us. And to that end, because <laughs> to a very large degree, he kind of helped write this, right. <laughs> um, we would like to welcome back to the show one of our favorite people on the planet, um, friend, teacher, mentor, and, and damn good writer to boot, and it's certainly been far too long. D20 Radio Zone, Keith Kappel. Keith, brother, welcome back to the show, man. Hey, it's uh, a pleasure as always to hang out with you guys and <laughs> talk about Genesis stuff. <laughs> so, okay, so uh, Keith, for some of our newer listeners who may not be familiar with you, who are you and what do you do? Sure. So I am Keith Ryan Kappel. That's me. I'm a freelance writer. And uh, for like the past seven years, something like that, um, I've been a freelance writer for Fantasy Flight Games. So I worked on a whole lot of Star Wars books and a whole lot of Genesis books, including the aforementioned Expanded Player's Guide uh, and the Adversary Creation section, which I did sort of early work on. And then it, it went through a few iterations and grew and became the thing we all know and love in uh, sort of testing and uh, editing. Well, so, again, I, wa I want to dive into that if we could, because, like, I, I want to set some expectations here. It's like when Huli and I reached out to you, we did so because we knew that you had written the the the, the power level and, and NPC creation, adversary creation guidelines in the EPG. But, you know, and you actually mentioned this to us when you were with us last time on the show with with Sam Gregor Stewart, saying that, you know, there were a lot of changes, you know, in between what, what between what you wrote and what ended up in the final product. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, people might hear that and think like, oh, man, Keith really sucks at his job that they changed everything. But they, this is a pretty <laughs> normal part of the role-playing game sort of design and development process where freelancers will have a pretty narrow window to do their their draft and make it as good as they can. But uh, uh, that window doesn't usually account for like putting it in front of players, certainly not enough to be like considered a, a broad testing situation. And when it's something is, uh, I guess, mathy and complicated, the system as uh, challenge levels, uh, it's just, it's inevitable that whatever one guy, you know, and his home office comes up with, isn't going to produce what sort of the final version of it. it's just it's just too complicated the thing for for one guy to do in like six weeks or whatever it was <laughs> too great for me immortal ken indeed uh. especially considering like that's not the only thing i did in that book either you know so mm. Now, but even then, just beyond that, now we're going to focus a lot on this discussion on the rules that are in that book because they're they're pretty good. Um, 
But beyond that, we we also really wanted to bring your expertise in because you, as you said, you have written for 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 narrative dice systems so freaking much. I mean, when it comes to you know, I, I can count on one hand the number of of professionals that I know for this game that have the writing experience you do with it. And so when we talk about building a balanced adversary, we're you know, you're 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 not a novice, is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> I hope not. I, I hope I know what I'm doing. Uh, you know, it, it, I've practiced a lot. I'll put it that way. So. Mm. Uh, yeah, the sample of adversaries in this book and in Android, uh, the Android book, the whole adversaries chapter, I built those. Uh, I want to say I did some of the ones in the Keyforge book as well, but maybe not. Uh, so I have some experience with Genesis specifically, and of course, I've done a ton of Star Wars adversaries as well. And for my own home stuff, and Ready Fight, my little uh, foundry mm. book some people might have played, right? So, <laughs> so I've, I've played with like under the hood of the adversary mechanics. Uh, a fair bit. So yeah, mm. I feel qualified. <laughs> That's for sure. <laughs> All right. So look, let's get stuck into this, I think. Um, now, we originally planned to tackle NPC creation as a bit of a two-part discussion. Um, the first part on creation, the the second part about adversary power levels. But the bottom line is that the two aspects are so intertwined that they really should be discussed in the same breath. So we're going to attempt this Herculean task of doing it all in the one show. <laughs> which is which is why we're only having one central show segment this episode, guys. Correct, correct. And it was it was it was it was a tough call. We, we I'm, I'm sorry again, again. I'm sorry that we're leaving you without an Eberron reforged. Um, which we had, we had planned to do, um, mm. and I, I think I think Eric was kind of chagrined as well. Um, <laughs> but we, uh, unlike our other talks, we when we really got down to the notes on this, we realized we just couldn't split it up. Mm. It's just it's one of those rare things that that would it would do more harm than good to do yeah. that. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. So, Huli, before we we start mm. this talk, I think it's important to remind everyone. Um, that uh, of some of the, the things we're going to be referencing, if you if you would open your workbooks at home, um, <laughs> the you know we're going to be referencing a lot of book material in this talk, um, mm. in this conversation, and, and specifically that that adversary creation process and and the power level settings that we'll be talking about are in the expanded players guide, um, pages seventy four through eighty five. Mm -hmm. If you want to follow along in your storybooks at home. Mm -hmm. um, also, we will occasionally be referencing um, the Genesis FAQ and Errata version 11 document mm -hmm. PDF, uh, yep. which is available at fantasyflightgames.com. Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, because obviously it, it, took, it took all the previously published adversary stat blocks and gave them power levels. <laughs> right. Right, uh, which which we could reference. Super nice of them, by the way. It was very, it was very nice of them to do that. Yes, um, <laughs> it, it it helped out a lot um, because it answers some questions, especially when you get into like upper limits of power levels. That you're like an ancient dragon, seventeen combat. <laughs> we'll, we'll we'll come we'll come to that. Um, and then, of course, there is a very helpful section in the core rules about NPCs, pages one thirty one through one thirty five. Um, which which provides us the rules governing NPCs and how to run them in your games. And then on pages uh, 202 to 203, they, they kind of take a high-level approach to adversary design um, that, that FFG obviously expanded upon greatly in the, mm. in the Expanded Player's Guide. Yeah, I will say, uh, 
like I want to say the way I remember it because it was a while ago when I got this job. But my mandate from Sam was basically like, see these like four pages in the core book. Mm. I, I want you to build them out to like ten pages or whatever it was, and uh, right. and figure out how to do challenge levels in there somewhere too. I was like, oh, that sounds easy. No. But <laughs> I want to say it was like, you sure you guys don't want to do this part in-house and let me do something else? You sure? Because it certainly sounds like something that they would normally do in-house, doesn't it? Yeah. I'm either taking it as Sam just voicing an extreme vote of confidence in me, or they didn't know what to do either. <laughs> it's one or the other. <laughs> um, I'm going to go with the former. Yeah. <laughs> we'll be we'll be optimistic here um but no listen what, what you've done is great um and I, i'm i'm at the point now that even even in some of the some of the there have been it's been twice now actually um i haven't had as much opportunity as i've wanted but there's been twice now i've actually used these the epg creation rules to make some i mean i mean <coughs> very carefully following it making my own adversaries and i've i've table tested them and they've they've been great on challenge with the with the with the CL ratings, so mm. yeah, man, it, it 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 seems to work pretty damn well. <laughs> the testers do a good job that way. Got to yeah. give them a lot of credit. Thank you, because uh, I <laughs> I was involved in that test. But anyway, that's a side note. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, look, we're going to do our best to encapsulate as much of all of that material as we can. We're really going to speak about all of this content as plainly as we possibly can with some really good exploratory discussion. But honestly, the source material is king. So as you listen, I would behoove you to have both the core rules and the EPG handy uh, just to follow along. Mainly because we're not going to simply reread the material in the book. Uh, you are all smart people and um, you could read really, really well, I'm assuming. Otherwise, <laughs> I don't know whether Genesis is available in an ebook. You might want to rethink, you might want to rethink your hobby. You don't, you don't want to do an audio dramatic reading of the adversary creation novels? You sure? Mm, the Genesis Core Rules is read by Samuel L. Jackson. That would be amazing. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you, you know, we, we could do like an audiobook podcast series of it, and it would be up for about 10 minutes before we got the pantsuit off of us. <laughs> I mean, yeah. That is true. Accepting that it would be probably completely illegal. But fun. It would be fun. I'll put uh, it by the paywall. They'll never know. They'll never know, right? I'm sure, I'm sure they'll never know. Yeah. Right. All right. Anyway, uh, we are going to summarize, encapsulate, highlight, and draw some hopefully easy to understand lines, parallels, and examples uh, as we go. So, uh, so yeah. And as a high level, guys, in tonight's discussion, which is we we really want to be very free flowing, as we have a wonderful guest with us to give us all kinds of insight. Hmm. Um, we we've written a, a great deal of of notes as points of reference for this show, but a lot of those have silent or pregnant question marks behind them because there's some things we just don't know. And mm. I fully, I expect and actually hope that that some of the conclusions we've come to putting together, Keith, I really hope that you will tear them apart or and cast them down with some some of your wisdom. I will be here. Spite is my other middle name. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so that's, that's what I'm hoping for. But but tonight, guys, we, re- we, we first of all, we're going to start with a very brief overview of the types of adversaries that are there. It's going to be, we want to have a short talk about that 
to kind of set the stage and, and kind of remind you of that because it really is important to remember. Mm-hmm. Um, then we're going to talk power levels at a high level. We're going to kind of take a step forward before we take a step back because as we've, we're kind of building the, the 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 notes for this episode, we realized that that was also high level knowledge that needed to be had first before we get into the next thing we're going to talk about, which is actually going through the process of adversary creation mm-hmm. and how that informs power levels. And then we're going to close our discussion tonight with actually diving into using the adversary power levels and the Keats aforementioned challenge ratings to create a balanced encounter. And, mm-hmm. and, and, and the easy way in which that can be done. So those are our goals for this talk. Right. Ambitious. <laughs> hey, man, we got, you for, we got you for a couple hours. I figured we'd make the most of it. <laughs> sure. All right. So our first point, and we're only going to do this very, very quickly. It's just for mainly the people who have, like, this is their first time that they've opened up the Genesis book and they really want to run a game, but also have the EPG and they really want to uh, be able to go, okay, what is an adversary? So as we get further into the topic, we're going to be throwing terms at you. So this is the reason why we wanted to do this, uh, so that it doesn't seem all so confusing. Basically, adversaries don't always follow the same rules that PCs do. If you've already gone through the character creation chapter and you realize how to build a, a character, you'll find that there are distinct differences. The first one is that they don't need a career skill list. There's not a whole heap of a list of these are the only skills that this particular NPC can have that doesn't exist. You choose it to suit the theme. The next point is that you, as far as prerequisites for talents, you don't actually need the prerequisite for a talent. So in other words, if you have an improved version of a talent, uh, you don't need the basic talent. The next point is they carry gear that they need to carry to execute their functions. So you can actually have people or NPCs that are carrying these monstrous weapons that probably they shouldn't be able to carry. But because of the particular theme that that adversary is going for, that's what they're going to be able to carry. Uh, They also don't need talents like grit or toughened or enduring to have high strain wounds or soak uh, at all, because you're just going to go with the, the feel of what feels right, and you don't want to get stuck into the minutiae of how many talents that they need to be able to do these things. Mm. Yeah, I can tell you uh, uh, the reason a lot of those like they seem like shortcuts, and the reason they're in place is not only to benefit uh, people playing the game, but to benefit writers like myself yeah. who don't want to have to like account for every XP we spent to build an adversary. Yeah. Uh, you could just pick stuff and throw it on the table. It's meant to happen really quickly. Mm. Mm. Keith, it not I know not professionally, but semi pseudo professionally, I should say what what super fan heavy. You developed, you know, you you and I first met over our mutual love of the previous incarnation of the Star Wars system, which was published by Wizards of the Coast, right? And that was that was the Star Wars Saga edition. Yeah, D twenty revised saga, like all that. That was their third version, right? <laughs> yeah. And so you helped write a lot of fan content for that, a lot. Yeah, me and my buddy Ryan Brooks, who you also know quite uh, well. quite well. Yes, and you guys wrote some amazing stuff um, with you know fan fa- fandom comics was in it still is huge and beloved. I'm interested to get your thoughts on this because 
you and I come from that same cloth. Sure. And when I first started playing the Star Wars system, and I, I first got introduced to FFG's narrative, now Edge's narrative dice system, this contrast between the, the, the shorthand and the amount of time it took to create an adversary in this system versus the D20 system that preceded it was staggering to me. Yeah, it's like easily in the top five of reasons I love narrative dice system. Mm. And that's that I could put an adversary together, like me, especially with like the wealth of experience or any experience GM would have. I could put together like a high level NPC in like 20 minutes. Yeah. Like no problem. Whereas like if I was going to build a level even just say like a level 12 anything in D20 back in the day, that would be like, well, there goes my Saturday, you know, just for one adversary. (laughs) And if you're trying to do it in like a professional publishing environment, Hmm. you know, the gods help you because now you, I want to say the way I understand it is you had to like show every level of progression. So it's like, uh, you know, you're basically building that same adversary 12 times to get to a level 12 Hmm. adversary and leveling it up each time to account for every little, plus one and all that. And mm. and I'm not here to take a dump on D20 or anything. It's, it's a fine game. Oh, yeah. uh, but when you talk about speed of, of adversary creation, like, whoo, I remember the first few times I was building something and I was like, wait, that can't be it. What else is there? I'm missing something, right? Mm. And it's like, no, just, just pick the numbers you like. Mm. Of course, it demands that you have a bit more of an understanding of how the system works to build a successful, properly balanced sort of adversary, which I'm sure we're going to spend hours talking about today. <laughs> but uh, there's more responsibility to make them in in this because it's so open to do whatever you want. But with that responsibility comes a whole lot of freedom to achieve what you want really quickly without the system kind of checking you every mm. two minutes to make sure you're not going out of bounds. Yeah. Mm-hmm. One of the big things for me when it comes to this system as uh, as a GM, as I'm sure that the two of you would agree, is that uh, as opposed to other systems, and there's a lot of them out there with stat blocks a mile long or a page or more, that when it comes to preparing for a game, you, you would spend hours trying to work out exactly what was going on with this particular NPC, and then suddenly you, uh, uh, you know, it'll be over in about five minutes. So, uh, you know, it seems to be that there's a lot more time wasted that way as opposed to the way that they are for for Genesis and Star Wars before it that you can basically read up. uh, I mean, that's the reason why the cards exist. You can read up an NPC just straight on the cards and run the game from there. Uh, It's very, very simple. Mm -hmm. 100%. It's also, uh, I would say, easier to reskin adversaries in this system than many others. Like. If all I have is a stormtrooper card in front of me, like that can be almost any sort of ranged soldier I need it to be. Yep. Uh, or, you know, even something else. I could just give it a different weapon and be like, okay, instead of whatever weapon skill it has, it has this one. And mm. it's going to be fine. Mm. Yeah. And, and, and honestly, you, you'll, we will, and we'll get to this, but you will see that flexibility actually written into the rules of the expanded player guide mm. when we talk about the, the, the packages that are available, especially in the in the avenue of skills and equipment, yeah. where 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 the the write ups actually discuss a myriad of options that each package would fit into, spread across multiple types of settings, mm-hmm. um, and and multiple roles it could fill in varied settings, which I think is is important. But mm-hmm. they they make it a lot easier, and and one of the ways I think they make it a lot easier is 
with the types of adversaries they have. So so maybe this is a good segue to get into a very, very brief overview of the three adversary types in Genesis to remind everyone so that we don't have to rehash this again. Yeah. You're such a pro, Chris Witt. Such a oh. pro. <laughs> such a slick transition right there. It's almost like I've been podcasting for over a decade. Um, almost. Uh, almost like that. Um, so with that in, I want to talk about my f- one of my favorite things in the system, one of my top five favorite things in Genesis and yep. Star Wars, for that matter, yep. um, which is the concept of the minion. Mm. Okay. Um, I was one of the guys who, um, and I, again, don't mean to disparage another system, but I will, um, was not a fan of fourth edition Dungeons and Dragons. Mm. Um, it was it was just a, well, it was a little too much for me um, in terms of the 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 heavy crunch. Um, but one of the things I thought that system did exceptionally well is it introduced into a D20 system, the concept of a minion. Okay. Mm. Um, which, which is the idea is they're, they're, they're minions. They're, they're, they're fodder, they're paper. You take them out quickly. Okay. Mm -hmm. And I even converted that to saga edition and seeing it written even better in a way that, that takes on a whole new trope in this system. I really like minions are the, the foot soldiers of your adversaries. They are the faceless, nameless people who and or creatures or whatever that provide that 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 numbers to really bulk out your encounters. I mean, mm-hmm. like like squads of enemy soldiers, groups of of back alley criminal enforcers, gatherings of angry citizenry and mobs. <laughs> um, you know, a, a swarm of of uh, or a pack of of ravening beasts chasing you. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> you know, the the minion is the 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 lowest common denominator. And as a reminder, what you need to know about minions. They do not suffer strain. In fact, they don't even have a strain threshold. Um, and if they do, they can't even voluntarily suffer strain. If they do suffer strain for any reason, they instead it instead goes to their wound threshold. Mm-hmm. Um, the big differentiator and what confuses a lot of new GMs to the system, especially, is that minions don't possess ranks and skills. Mm-hmm. Um, each minion instead um, has a a skill a, a group skill list of just a handful of skills, mm-hmm. and for those skills. Minions act in concert, in group. They move as a group. They attack as a group. They work as a group. Hmm. Uh, you know, their, their wound threshold stacks um, into one large group for each individual. And each additional minion past the first in the group adds one upgrade to the die pool for a group skill that the minion possesses. Hmm. And this is the thing that a lot of people get sort of hung up on, Chris, as well as this. Um, is it just an upgrade? It, it's actually not. It is a, it's just a single skill rank that they have for each additional one. So that if you've got that's a four better way people. To, that's a better way to put it, yeah. Yeah, that if there's, there's four of them and they've only got two, as you would normally calculate if, if a PC had the same level of skill ranks, you're just swapping those uh, around so that your skill now becomes the number of uh, ability dice and then the, uh, the, the level that you have in the attribute becomes the, uh, the proficiency dice. So that's where a lot of people get mixed up because they think that, oh, okay, so I'm upgrading for every single one and right. they're just using that base of two or three or one, however many ability dice they are, and they start upgrading from there. It doesn't. It You're works. cheating. You're cheating your minion groups out of some dice in yeah, that pool. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. If that's, they have that, low that's characteristics. A, that's, a, that, that's a better way to put it, because if you hmm. just treat it as upgrades on the base, yeah, you will end up, I mean, depending on how big the minion group is, you will end up missing a die, basically. Yeah. 
Absolutely. Right. Well, mm-hmm. if if the group size is more than one higher than, uh, uh, so I guess two higher than the attribute, you'll end up shorting some dice. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And so that's that's key. Mm. Um, the other thing I love about minions is that they can fight. They they fight as a group, but they can the G as a GM. I can split them. I can reform them. I can combine them with another minion group of the same type. Mm-hmm. And it's it's like standard practice for me now, man. If I've got if I've got multiple minion groups out there, if they start getting picked off and and their numbers are very low, or I've got a lone minion out there, man. Mm-hmm. On that on their turn, they will form into a group, and I will you know Start they'll, they'll mm-hmm. yeah. Sure. That's that's how they spend their maneuver, and they they form, and all of a sudden, wow! It's 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 now a deadly threat again. Yeah, right. Um, I think know, minion and, groups are a lot more flexible than people give them credit for. Even. Oh gosh, yeah. Oh, uh, I know. I've had the weird just uh, luck, I guess, of getting to write rules that mess with the minion group rules a couple times now. Mm. Uh, in the squad and squadron rules, right? Like mm-hmm, I wrote those mm-hmm. for Star Wars, and that's a sort of a new way of of looking at minion groups. And then also the Phalanx rules in mm. Rise of the Separatists was uh, another sort of new way to use minion groups. Yep. And those are like yeah. big changes, but like there's a lot of neat little things you could do with them. I think the other thing people always want to do with minion groups is assume that they're all standing like right next to each other if they're <laughs> in a group, but they don't necessarily have to be. Uh, no. They could be in sort of like a wide line or something like that. Mm. You could you could experiment with the shapes a little bit to get the narrative effect you work yep. you want, especially oh, man, in like dude, I've, range I've combat. I've run games where they've been on. I've run games and sessions where they've been on opposite sides of the map. Sure. Um, yeah. I, I don't do it often, but mm. I, I've done it. Um, yeah. <clears throat> I mean, you 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 can. Yeah, you could do a lot of just different things with them, and you could use them for vehicles as well, which mm. a lot of people mm. don't. Uh, think about all the time yep. or uh, uh, even cruise on like a giant, like if you have a giant battleship or something and you want to make all of the guns, uh, one minion group, like you could do that. There's mm. nothing stopping you. That's actually, uh, so what, yeah, that's one of the things that is really, really good about minions because, uh, and we talked about this when we um, did our vehicle episodes is that uh, you can use them in that to make your vehicle combat so much easier yet you've got this great descriptive narrative going because there's three or four of these, you know, speeder bikes or motorbikes or whatever it is that are chasing the, the, the PCs in their car. Um, but it's only it's, one check still, so the check. PCs get to take center stage. Like, exactly. Minions are brilliant mm-hmm. for all kinds of reasons, mm. and we could probably just do a show talking about minions. But, uh, <laughs> True. Because <laughs> they're great. Mm. We have some great audio drops for that show too. You know, some some despicable me stuff. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> yeah, y'all y'all know what y'all know what Beethoven's favorite fruit is, right? No. Banana. <laughs> God. Oh yeah. Sorry. It, it's someone without a child. I have not seen them. <laughs> oh man. You, 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 yeah. You should watch Despicable I, I, Me. It's fantastic. I can identify them, but like. Mm. <laughs> not about that parent life yet <laughs> well as, as the gm is the parent to the threats in the encounter so to speak such a pro um, they're you know and, and you're managing those minion groups you guys have alluded to this and I, I mentioned it a bit before it's important to note that that not only do they they, they act regardless of how they're spaced 
they act as a single group, okay, yeah. as one threat, one entity, which, which you know, as you said, Keith, makes it great because it's just one check they make, that group mm-hmm. makes, right? Mm-hmm. But it also means they have a single wound threshold. It's shared by all members of the group. And, you know, as we'll get to, a minion, an individual minion actually has a, typically has an extremely low wound threshold, yeah. but it's additive. So every minion you add, add you know, that threshold gets that much incrementally bigger. Yeah. Um, and as the group takes wounds against the threshold, you eliminate members of the group once you start knocking off those sections of the wound threshold, right? right. Um, however, it is important to note that even with their with a bunch of minions stacked together, their their individual soak only applies once to the group. Yep. Um, which is which is really great. And also the other, I guess, last important rule for minions is that a critical injury uh, will automatically take out one member of the minion group yep. automatically. Hmm. You, you don't need to roll the crit. It's just you spend a crit. Boom, you've taken out a member of the minion group. Which is also great. Because you kind of want those moments where, like, yeah. my combat heavy guy, like, fights a group of six minions and, like, oh, my Jason Bourne just killed, like, three of them in one <laughs> attack or whatever. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, that's, I mean, seriously, uh, a, a, a high damage combat monkey can, you know, that can, that can pop off with a great roll 13, 15 damage in a single hit, which has happened. Okay. Mm, it, sure. happens. it happens. Okay. I mean, that will typically kill two minions out of a group straight away for most minion yep. groups, okay? And then if he also happens to roll a few advantage and, and pop off a crit, well, you've killed a third, okay? I mean, sure. yeah, it's, it's, you, can, you can mop. I've, I have seen strong, strong combat-focused PCs take an entire minion group out in one single attack. And and this is also like like you have to understand the narrative dice system. A lot of people don't realize this. When, when a PC makes an attack... It's not one discrete attack. Like that combat check you make is is narrative. It represents you making seven thrusts, two of which are deflected, and you know you finally get one that strikes home, or mm. peeking out from behind cover and taking three or four shots, you mm. know, with your gun, you know, at, at once. And so, you know, when, whereas with D twenty, it, it tends to be extremely dis- extremely discrete actions. Mm. And so with that narrative mindset, yeah, one hit doesn't represent like, you know, well, how do I kill three minions with one shot? You didn't. You took three shots, you know? <laughs> right. Yeah. There's um, also an argument man. that uh, uh, yeah. uh, just the definition of what it means to suffer a hit and what it means to be defeated are also a little like mushy mm-hmm. in a yeah. narrative system, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So you might have a revolver that literally has like limited ammo six. You're like clearly... In this instance, with this weapon, one shot is one round, right? Mm, uh, right. Possibly, right? Most likely. But, you know, uh, just because uh, somebody takes damage, that doesn't really mean they, they got hit with the round. Mm. It means they expended some energy, maybe diving and ducking out of the way. It can mean a lot of different things. Mm. And defeated could just mean they give up. They don't necessarily have to be dead mm. either. Yep. Uh, so there's there's a little bit of mushiness and flexibility when it comes to stuff like that. I would say when you definitely got hit is when you suffer like a critical, right? Mm, yeah, absolutely. Um, and just one minor point with that, something that I've seen with uh, or heard with some of the podcasts is that um, the, with critical injuries, when they roll like multiple triumphs versus a minion group, it doesn't mean that they can kill two in the minion group. Because you can only ever suffer one critical injury per turn, so you've got to come up with yeah. something else different to do with that uh, that other triumph. Uh, so something to remember there. All right, so we've talked about minions and how good they are. Our next one is rivals, 
so these are the NPCs who they're, they're really simplified versions of the PCs. So they're going to be like the named lieutenants of, uh, of the big bad guy, the uh, creatures or characters which are important enough to have a personality and some meaningful interaction with your PCs. So that can be like a merchant um, or somebody, um, a mechanic that you've gone in to get your vehicle repaired or something like that. Uh, they have their own distinct rules. They're a little bit different to minions. So like minions, rivals do have a strain threshold. Now, this means that when they suffer strain, they suffer wounds instead. But unlike minions, they can voluntarily suffer strain to perform, you know, additional things like maneuvers and activate abilities uh, and and other things like that. Uh, But that strain turns into wounds instead. The second big difference is that uh, rivals suffer critical injuries as normal, uh, as opposed to what happens with minions who eliminate one of their number on a critical injury. The rivals make the roll on the critical injury table and they suffer the effects of that injury as would anybody else. Now, the third difference is that rivals possess ranks in certain skills. Now, whereas minions who only have group skills, rivals are specialists in their field, and they, they're therefore going to possess skills that suit a specific purpose, specifically the purpose of that rival. So a good example might be where a pit crew in a Formula One race uh, might be minions uh, working together for a specific task, but they need to work together to use their skills. The lead mechanic, however, can operate autonomously, upgrading their ability dice to proficiency dice um, with their skill ranks without utilizing others for assistance. Now, obviously, they can use minions for assistance to be getting boost die for, a, for the assist maneuver. Uh, but generally speaking, they can work alone. They don't need any assistance. Now, the fourth difference is that rivals can sometimes possess specific abilities relevant to their purpose or relevant to their theme. Uh, If we use the mechanic, for example, they may have a special ability that allows them to spend a triumph to add two additional boost after a successful mechanics check. While an NPC like the alien warlord on page 188 of the core rules uh, with its ability of tactical direction, uh, where they may spend a maneuver to direct one friendly minion group within medium range, uh, and that group may immediately perform a free maneuver or they can add a boost die to their next check. So these special abilities are normally fairly unique, um, and rivals can also have talents. So don't forget that as well. You know, and we'll. Huli, well, I know we're going to talk about this more when we get to that that first step of of adversary creation hmm. and deciding where you want to pick it. You know what you're going to go with a, a minion or a rival or a nemesis. But one of the other defining features for me for rivals, and and this is talked about in the expanded players guide, is that a rival. You, you said it right, where it's almost like a simplified version of the PC. Hmm. A rival should be somebody that can go toe to toe with a single PC. Yep. Okay. Mm-hmm. And and it be challenging. Mm-hmm. For against a single PC, but a rival, unlike a PC, has one area of expertise yep. or one area of focus, mm-hmm. typically. Mm-hmm. 
And a way, a distinction I like to make is I, I the, the the way I often describe the distinction, but for other GMs is minions are faceless and nameless. Okay. Mm-hmm. Rivals, maybe they have a name, but maybe not. They could very well be nameless, but they've got a face. Yep. Okay. Mm-hmm. They have a personality. Yeah. They have they're 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 somebody who's memorable. There's somebody in a television show the camera would pause to focus on. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. They'd get their name in the credits at the back. Yeah, the actor at the would back, get at the very back, right? <laughs> you know, um, you know that's that that's 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 the rival, right? Mm. Mm. Which is very different from the nemesis, which has both a name and a face, definitely. But <laughs> yeah, for me, the rival is. Uh, uh, I tend to look at them as uh, minions operating groups. And arrivals operate alone, or they yeah. support groups, but they're separate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I, I tend to think of them in, in that regard. I, I know there's a tendency that to think of rivals as being naturally more powerful than minions, but I don't think that necessarily has to be so in all cases. I think it really depends mm-hmm. on the, the kind of character you're building. But like, uh, for instance, like a town doctor might be a rival, but you know. They might not be a particularly powerful character. It's just they don't work as a minion, so I made them a rival. Mm. Well, and they are extremely it. powerful in their area of focus, right? Which, right. Is, being, which, which is being a doctor. Sure. <laughs> yeah. So I guess if, if you do have a PC doctor, they can maybe compete with that character on the basis of, like, I don't know, a medical quiz show or something like that. Mm. You know, going head-to-head on medicine checks. But uh, <laughs> uh, But that would be kind of it. Yeah. Today on Save Your Life. Hey man, you don't know. You don't know what campaign somebody's running out there. There's somebody. This is very true. There's some strange things out there. Anyway, um, so our last one that we have is, as Chris mentioned before, is the Nemesis. Now this is going to be the BBEG of the encounter, potentially the campaign. Uh, and uh, they they pretty much follow all the rules that PCs do, uh, except for uh, their talents and uh, their unique abilities. That um, a lot of the time that they they have these unique abilities. And Keith, I think that you can certainly talk about uh, a little bit more about this. But uh, unique abilities really streamline some uh, combination of a, of a number of talents that rather than having a talent list, which is five miles long, they can just have one unique ability that really suits them. Uh, so could you just talk a, a little bit about that? Because I know that you've done that, obviously, with uh, especially with some of the Star Wars stuff that you've done. Sure. Uh, I mean, really, anytime... When I'm assigned writing adversaries, I give every single adversary a special ability, mm. knowing that like a third of them will probably get cut. But I like to give Sam the option to cut something, right? Right. Uh, and sometimes you just like to try, like, what would a special ability be for like a car salesman or whatever? So uh, uh, just to like challenge myself uh, as a designer, uh, developer, whatever. But uh, the idea, the the great power of special abilities is that. Like you said, it allows you to consolidate some some things that are kind of built on a general level, mm-hmm. but it also allows you to to have specificity, something specific and unique to that character that adds like a unique table flavor, something that the GM can bust out in an encounter, mm-hmm. and all the players go, "Ooh, what does that do?" Like it's something new and different. Yeah. Uh, so so there, there's like a combination of wow factor, convenience, 
and uh, uh, just specificity uh, to the the concept. Mm. Mm. And it, and you don't want to go like and okay, we're I don't want to get ahead of myself because I know we're going to talk about this in more <laughs> detail, but. You, you, when we when we get to that step of adversary, wow factor we, doesn't mean OP. It doesn't. Mean no, no, like. no, no, no. But, I, but I'm talking about the number of special abilities or talents oh, that a nemesis has. Yep, yep. Like, you know, and we're gonna we're we're. I'll say this now because we are going to say it again and again. You guys have to remember the golden rule here: the average combat or encounter of any even social in this game lasts three to maybe four, if you're lucky, rounds. Mm-hmm. Okay, and when, when especially online, if I get into conversations with people who are trying to build a stat block for for some iconic creature or character, and you know, it's like, but 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 the character can do this, but it can right. do that, but it can do this, but it can also do this, but it can do this, and it can do this. Oh, well, you forgot it also can do this. It's like, yeah, I know it can do all those things, but it's only going to get a chance to pop off three of them, pal. <laughs> There's definitely like a tendency among gamers in general who have like this. Most of us, I think, have this sort of completist mindset mm-hmm. where we want to be prepared for everything, right? And so there's there's this uh, instinct, I think, to build generalist NPCs that are going to be great in any kind of encounter you can imagine. When that's really counter to all the decisions that's working against you in building what are actually uh, good adversaries for the system, I think that is so full of wisdom. And can I can I make a confession to you all? Mm, sure, go ahead. Here on the Forge Podcast, <laughs> in the past thirteen years, mm. I have done a tremendous amount of book show interviews. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. Every Star Wars book that's ever come out, Keith, you've been with me for much much of that. Yeah, we've had we've had a book show on where we've had listener questions come in. Every Genesis book that's come out on this show, <laughs> we've had interviews where we have listener questions come in. Yep. And we ask these questions <laughs> that, that relate to adversaries and threats every single time. We ask them out of due diligence, and I cringe every <laughs> single time I get these questions in because one of my beautiful brethren... We'll be like, well, what about this on the stat block? He can do this. And as a designer, you guys are so nice because what you're not saying is, dude, we chose the most iconic things that made sense for a combat encounter, and it did everything we could to keep it from being bloated. Yeah, right. right. And and that's that's where the point is, I think, and I'm sure we'll dive into it again later. Mm. But the idea behind less being more is that when you're a GM, and especially with uh, – officially published stuff where we were trying to make it approachable for newer players and newer GMs. Uh, but you don't want to have the GM suffering from analysis paralysis. You know, when yep. your player sits there and looks at the 13 different talents they've picked up <laughs> over the past hundred XP and, and they don't know what they're going to do that turn. You know, that guy who slows down play because they spend 15 minutes trying to figure out what to do and didn't really have a plan when their turn came to them. <laughs> you don't want to put that on the GM as well. Yeah. GM is yeah. already balancing enough. They have a ton on their plate that they're keeping track of already. So keeping your adversary clean mm. uh, makes it good because then the GM can go, oh, this guy does this. So that's what they're going to do. Yeah. Yeah. Like that's the goal. Yeah. Uh, you don't want to build like this tactical combat simulator in Genesis mm. where the GM is playing against the players and trying to figure out the best tactical move or whatever. That's, mm. that's not what the system's built to do. There are systems that are built to do that, but Genesis is not, not really. A, one yeah. Of them. Yeah. 
Because, I mean, the example that, that I like to use when, when people start talking about that is the Rancor from Return of the Jedi. That if you were doing the stats for that, like if they had had a Return of the Jedi book, that what you would do is you would look at what's the best, uh, like, uh, their, their ability is going to be based on the fact that they're in a, in a combined, uh, sorry, a confined space. So, but if you had a Rancor out in the open field, their stat block may be completely different because that's not what they are used for or that's, that's not how they hunt in the wild and stuff like that. So, if you had... Uh, if you've got a, a stat block, whether it be from one of the adversary cards or whatever else, it's to suit a specific situation, but their stat block may be different for a different scenario. Um, Particularly so. when you're seeing them in like adventure content, yeah. right? When uh, uh, when we're presenting adversaries in a in a context of like here's a bunch of adversaries in the back of the book, those are kind of like generally built usually. Although sometimes you will see like in the name, it'll be like. Uh, baby rancor or whatever it'll be like there'll be a modifier to make mm. it specific to a certain situation yep. uh just to Im- give them imprisoned room. rancor right yeah. something like that mm-hmm. uh just so that you can make it different just like you're saying mm. in an adventure they tend to be a lot more that way mm. uh, uh because when the designers or the developers building those adversaries in that context it's to suit a specific encounter they've already mm. built for that adventure mm. instead of like a more general approach where they should plug and play this adversary yeah. everywhere. Yeah. Not that you yeah. can't, but like it's built to serve a mm. specific purpose. Exactly. So we, we've talked about the types of adversaries that are out there and we're going to come back to that again. But the last thing I think to say before we really dive into the meat of this conversation is good conversation we've been having is also the general, the general adversary profile that you're going to see it's going to have some details which we've been alluding to it's going to have the name or role of the adversary and their type okay whether it's a minion or a rival or a nemesis it's going to have a description it's going to have the six characteristics that 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 adversary has mm-hmm. you know brawn agility etc cetera, etc cetera. Mm-hmm. it's going to have soak assuming it's a character scale adversary yep it's going to have defenses mm-hmm. okay Potentially, it's going to have strain and wound thresholds. Um, again, if it's a character scale adversary, mm. it's going to have skills. It's going to have talents. It's going to have abilities, and it's going to have equipment. Mm. And interestingly enough, virtually every single point we just went through is part of the adversary creation <laughs> process. <laughs> oh man! <laughs> so, so I want to lead us into that path, guys. But before we 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 deeply get into that, I really want to also since we've high level level set around adversaries and adversary types, which we need to, mm. I want a high level level set about power levels. Mm. Okay. And question, you know, we, we decided to make this show a larger show about NPC creation and use in general. But the genesis of the the, the genesis, <laughs> you see what I did there? You see I there? Okay. Mm-hmm. The genesis of this show topic came because we've been getting listener questions about how to use power levels. Okay, yep. mm-hmm. and and we, we determined you really can't talk about one without talking about the other. Mm-hmm. And so I, I want to take this step forward briefly before we take a step back, and I want to put power levels in context now to inform the discussion going forward. Because this this concept of power levels, Keith, was introduced in the EPG, in the Expanded Player's Guide. Yeah, It's something that Star Wars players, many of us, uh, have been asking for for, 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 for years. Mm. I mean, the, 
the 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 idea of being able to measure the effective threat of an NPC compared to the capabilities of the PC group in order to determine balanced encounters. I mean, previously in, in all of Star Wars to this point, still in Star Wars, and up until now with the EPG and Genesis, you just had to eyeball it. So talk to me about this idea, man. Where did it come from? Why decide to do it? What can you tell us? So uh, certainly I think where it came from was, like you said, it was fans and GMs and players asking for it, right? Mm. If uh, people want a thing and enough of them uh, loudly want it uh, for long enough, Sam's eventually going to hear it and say, hey, we should try that. Mm. (laughs) And, you know, hopefully next time he doesn't just be like, give it to Keith, see what he does. (laughs) But, uh, uh, yeah, so so Sam hired me to work on EPG, and uh, the vehicle stuff is also mine and all the example vehicles in the book. So I had a pretty big chunk of this book to do. But one of the things he asked for was uh, sample adversaries and the figuring out, cracking the code on the adversary uh, power levels. Mm. So that was kind of all he really said. I, I think the other uh, sort of mandate he had was that he wanted the way that the adversary power level got calculated to be separate from the equipment. He want, he had this vision for these equipment arrays that could then be sort of plug and played onto different adversaries. Right. So that that was also part of like the original concept that I was given. Mm-hmm. And from there, it was kind of like, take a month, see what you come up with, and then I'll look at it and then figure out the rest in a couple weeks. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> uh, you know, though my part of these jobs tends to last like, you know, somewhere in the six to 12 week range. But mm-hmm. uh, yeah, so the only way to sort of build it as I started sort of playing with the numbers. And obviously I've been eyeballing it for quite a while myself. So I had this sort of gut intuitive understanding of, you know, what was an appropriate challenge for different uh, uh, sort of experience and rated groups. Mm-hmm. So I kind of it built it from eyeballing a little bit myself. That's where sort of the first set of numbers came from. And then I started trying to break it and then, you know, you refine it and then the the playtesters, Julian company, uh, <laughs> broke it a lot more and refined it more. So, uh, uh, yeah, but mostly it was like the two big things I remember grappling with was like, well, if I have an adversary that dumps all of their sort of skill ranks into social stuff, they're not really a threat at all on the battlefield. So how do I sort of separate that? So it immediately became clear that we had to sort of separate the power levels into different categories to to be of much use uh to gms so when we when we talk about the the skills that an adversary has i mean there's lots of minutiae but but at a very high level you can really classify them into combat skills and combat ability social ability and then for lack of a better term everything else right right Mm. So maybe maybe you can talk to us then and, and kind of give us an overview of the three different power level types for an adversary, what they are and, and what they mean. Sure. So there's the combat power level, the social power level, and the general power level. And the basic idea here is just that you're able to like use a table in Genesis to see what power level on an adversary equals like what amount of XP your party has uh, based on the size of your party and the XP that your party's earned. And de- determine it in a quote-unquote appropriate challenge for your party to face. Now, when I say appropriate, the the way, uh, uh, at least the way I was aiming for, is that if you make the levels equal, your party's almost certainly going to win. 
Like they're probably going to win that encounter. Not a hundred percent because, you know, we're dealing with dice and probability and there's outliers and players might do something very strange or wonderful <laughs> or whatever. Uh, so you could certainly win encounters with things that are out of your league challenge rating wise mm. or, uh, you know, fail ones that are under it. But, but for the most part, you should have a pretty good chance of success if those numbers are even. So what is the distinction between combat power level, social power level, and general power level? Right. So in Genesis, when you're running the game and you're having encounters, you may have a combat encounter where you're doing initiative and you're entering combat sort of structured time. Uh, or you might have a social encounter where people are making charm checks and, you know, versus cool checks or you know, all these, you know, negotiation versus negotiation, a haggling encounter. Mm. Uh, if you're having a social encounter, then the social power level sort of helps you gauge the, the threat level for that. And then the general power level are for things like more skill challenge type uh, encounters where it's like, oh, it's a hacking, a computer hacking encounter maybe, or a, a medical sort of encounter, or even a, a movement encounter where you're using things like athletics and coordination and stealth or even like riding or whatever. Survival, tracking yeah. tracking opponents in the wilderness. Sure, survival's another great one. So uh, yeah, the, the general power level sort of accounts for those sort of encounters. Uh, obviously, I would imagine combat is probably the one where people uh, wanted this system the most. Mm. That's what they care about the most is like, <laughs> how many you know creatures can I throw at my party before it's, they have no chance of surviving it? Mm. Uh, so I wanted to make sure that I was giving them uh, as much accuracy as I could without overwhelming them in math and complications. Mm. And I did my best. And then, as I've said already, Sam and the playtesters streamlined it and made it even easier mm. uh, and more approachable to use. Because so. mm. one of the interesting things about these, uh, these power levels is the first time that I saw anything of it was in Legend of the Five Rings. That's where it originated from with this combat level, social level, and um, general power level. And then suddenly it appeared in, uh, in, in Genesis. So, um, Oh, so I yeah. will say uh, I can't speak to which product I worked on first. I don't remember whether I worked on some L5R before I worked on this. Mm. But uh, I don't remember the idea intentionally coming from there. Mm. Uh, okay. But but certainly uh, in my early draft, because I did open up my early draft for this just to be able to look at it, <laughs> I definitely did split it up because right away it's just, you know, it makes I was looking sense. at certain, yeah, I mean, at least for the combat and the social, right? Mm. I, I would argue the how often you're going to use that sort of general power level. Mm. But, but I'm sure when you're talking about how many games of Genesis or Star Wars are getting played in any given year or whatever, mm. I'm sure it comes up. <laughs> And, you know, I think it's important to note, and this is this is called out, I think, in, in the books rather clearly, that even if you've got an adversary that has, like, no social capability <laughs> or, or, or no combat capability, every adversary always has a minimum power level of one in each of those three categories. Yeah, yes. I mean, they're still rolling dice. There's never – Exactly. There's, there's – always a non-zero chance yeah. of uh you know something strange happening mm. but but i mean is there an upper limit to how high these power levels can go i i mean i don't think so uh <laughs> i mean certainly the the chart builds it out right so that 22 is the highest thing we see on the chart in the book but uh i could tell you i want to say i'm not going to tell you what it is but 
I want to say, oh no, my chart didn't even go that high. So I want to uh, know what the twenty-two is because the only one that I knew was the uh, you know the ancient dragon in, in realms of Terranoth with its <laughs> with its combat uh, level. Just because there's 17. a twenty-two on the chart doesn't mean someone <laughs> built a t- level uh, challenge right, right. twenty-two thing. Somebody just did the math and and decided that what a, a one thousand XP group can handle right. is, is a twenty two. Well, yeah, but that's but that's that's cumulative. That's not necessarily one threat, right? Yeah. Hmm. Right. That's the other aspect too. Yeah. Hmm. So we'll we'll talk about that. But hmm. but yeah, man, you open up you open up that FAQ, the version eleven <laughs> FAQ in Errata, where, where it's got the realms of Terranoth stat blocks, mm-hmm. like with power levels added. 17 combat power. <laughs> 17 for the ancient yeah. dragon. That's a lot. That's, That's the, and it, it's it's dude, read read the stat block. It's worth it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean it happens. You know, it, and I think Terranoth also just by nature of being fantasy lends itself to like my entire party fighting one giant creature, right? Yeah. Which isn't mm. necessarily true of every setting. But uh, I, th- I think sword and sorcery type fantasy stuff lends itself to that sort of encounter. Whereas, like uh, um, even uh, Star Wars, which we've mentioned a few times today, hmm. uh, you know, Darth Vader doesn't usually fight the entire party of rebels. No. He fights like one or two people at a time, maybe. Mm-hmm. Uh, except for we're talking Rogue One. But uh, that was all the way full of. No, that was. That, yeah, no, I'm, but- sorry. I'm sorry. In that, in that instance, Vader was the PC. <laughs> yep. <laughs> A group of minions. Yeah, for sure. That's you know, that that's what was it like? Fifteen minions, probably Sorry three groups that. of three five, maybe. Of five, maybe. Like, like in the initial hallway, I think it was like five, maybe six, which I'm sorry, even even a minion group that high, if it was two groups of three yep. or even one group of six, I think Vader could probably squash. Mm. Yeah. And I mean, they were just rebel troopers. It's not even like they were <laughs> fancy powered up minions. Half of them didn't even seem to have weapons after the initial moment. So <laughs> their combat challenge rating would be pretty low. Yeah. But, but you know, I mean, in the movies, you see them like dual Luke Skywalker. Or mm. There's, you know, a few moments where uh, I think on Bespin, he rips away Han's blaster. and mm-hmm. Leia doesn't even seem to get a turn on it. Boba Fett's right there, too. You know, and he doesn't operate alone either. He's always got some stormtroopers around him. Yeah. So, so I, I think uh, in other settings, you know, you might want to look at or just remember that not every adversary has to be like a team opponent. Mm. So, what do these specific numeric values of the power levels actually mean? Uh, I think that that's something that we'll come to to the explanation. We'll, we'll come to that. Yeah, but right now you need to understand that higher power levels equate to more challenging threats. And that as you build an adversary, you'll be adding to their power levels potentially uh, with each step during the creation process. Now, that's on page 74 to 83 of the Expanded Player's Guide, which we mentioned earlier, where it heavily details in a 6 step the adversary creation process, each step of which informs the power levels of the adversary. Now, we're going to summarize each step as we go. We're going to discuss it uh, at length and maybe add a few modifications uh, that we found necessary to make the process easier, along with making your NPCs more balanced and more playable. First up, though, we have to really set your expectations. And the rules do this quite well, uh, where the power levels of all of the three, so combat, social, 
and general, all of those are going to start at zero. Now, yes, we understand that the minimum is one, but we'll get into that in a little bit and explain why, but they all start at zero. Now, along the way, many steps of the adversary creation process have the potential to modify those power levels, and we're going to explain that as we go. Yeah, and it's it's interesting to me that, like, uh, also, if you guys are following along in your storybooks at home, <laughs> there is a bit of a typo that has not been errated yet in the Expanded Player's Guide. Mm-hmm. If you slip, flip to the very last step in character cre- in adversary creation, um, it will tell you that it's step seven, but there is no step six. <laughs> it goes from five to seven. Right. <laughs> Um, so it, it is a six step process and we will refer to step seven as step six in our talk. Okay. Mm -hmm. Uh, there is one other thing that I think we talked about last time too. I think in the characteristic characteristic array table, didn't like two things get Mm -hmm. flipped or something. Yeah. Yeah. There are, there are a couple things that still need to be errated, but they're pretty obvious. Mm -hmm. So that's worth noting as well. Now, the first step is actually one that I felt it necessary to add as kind of an adjunct, I call it step zero. It's not specifically called out as a step in the book. It Mm. it is briefly talked about, but it's not called out as a step. And I feel personally, guys, that it is so crucial that I've added it as a step zero. And that step is that the first thing you do for an adversary is you have to figure out what role you want the adversary to play in the game at a high level. And I'm talking very high level. Are they... Are they an ally? Are they an obstacle? Are you are you creating them to be a combat challenge or a social challenge or just a, a, a an ally, a master of general skills for the for the party? What is their purpose? What is their purpose in the session you will be using them in? What is their purpose in the overall campaign? And a, a tactic I use and 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 Keith, I'd love to get your feedback on this. Sure. Is I write meaningful adjectives just two or maybe three adjectives to describe the adversary that that gives me that overview like you know um you know a skilled warrior a jack of all trades um a cunning beast you know dodgy savvy tough skin territorial uh, a leader of men okay <laughs> or or women as the case may be sure um you know i mean but that that that's always been a tool that helps me in that initial overview process and as we'll see kind of informs so much just having that sort of single sentence understanding of the adversary you're creating mm. yeah having like an elevator pitch or just like a concept whatever phrasing you want to use to describe it knowing being able to say in one sentence or so what like what is this thing and why am i making it mm. uh is important i think it's also important to remember that Role-playing games in general are storytelling games, right? They're like interactive, improvisational, collaborative storytelling games. And so when you're talking about creating an adversary, you're talking about introducing a character of some kind into your story. So yeah, as you said, understanding the role that this character is going to play in that story is important before you start making decisions about it. Mm. Mm-hmm. And, and that's something that... Uh, and I don't like to quote it, but it is something that they did in 4th edition D&D, is all of their NPCs that they had, especially Monster Manual, had this, as you mentioned before, Chris, it has these two or three word descriptor of what it is, whether it be Sneaky Goblin or Goblin Archer. It's, it's some flavor. Some flavor, exactly. And by giving them that, you tell, you're informing the reader exactly what their purpose is in a very brief form. 
And then the next step of the process, that's when you start talking about the, most people call it fluff, um, but it actually describes in, you know, anywhere between 100 to 150 words, depending on, you know, how much space you want to have, um, to describe what that NPC does. And like, I don't mean to dog on fourth edition, forgive me for my earlier comments, there's a lot of people who are huge fans of that system. Mm. It's not for me. Um, but 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 the one thing that even I feel that it got perfectly right mm. was adversaries. Yeah, it, it it did it did adversary creation and usage exceptionally well. Mm. I, I love the concept of the adjectives because it and and that that descriptive language mm-hmm. because as we will see, it will take the hard work out of selecting skill packages mm-hmm. and it will take the hard work out of selecting potentially even equipment packages. Yeah. Okay. Mm. Potentially, you know, and, and you can, you can save yourself a lot of time. And if you spend 30 seconds with step zero, you can save yourself 10 minutes of book diving mm-hmm. and rethinking later on. Yeah. Mm. Sure. So, you know, if, if, if I know they're canny or sneaky, well, that really informs, you know what I mean? Mm. Uh, yeah, so much. If they're, if you know, they're, you know, a skilled warrior. It, it, yeah, it inform- I mean, yeah, d- d- duh, right? But mm. I mean, this is all. This is we're, we're not giving you guys secrets to the universe here. This is pretty common sense <laughs> stuff. Yeah, but it's 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 something that a lot of people overlook. They they want to dive right into the mechanical stuff. Start higher level. Yep, that's mm. all I'm saying. Mm. Agreed. So then we get on to step one, which is the adversary type. Um, and it's the first step to determine whether your adversary is going to be a minion, a rival, or a nemesis, as we mentioned before. Um, so, you know, we're not going to go through what um, what each of them are again. Um, rewind if you need to. Um, but the, the minion is going to be, you know, as weak as an individual, dangerous in a group. They're going to be nameless and faceless, strength in numbers, and they usually support for a named character, whether it be a rival or a nemesis. The rival, however, is uh, they're a bit of a worthy foe, matching the PCs in one area of expertise. They can serve as a, a multiplier for uh, for minions. Uh, maybe uh, a name, maybe not. Uh, you know, rather than an imperial lieutenant, it might be Lieutenant Dodger or something like that. I don't know. Um, you not you know that I'm not very good at coming up with names very quickly. <laughs> but anyway, um, uh, it's PC-level competence in a single area of focus, as Chris mentioned before, whether it be combat, mechanics, social, etc. Uh, they can lead and assist minute groups. They can even challenge a single PC in a head-to-head engagement. And then we've got our last type, which is a nemesis, which uh, they're the important adversaries. Uh, they're, they're often major obstacles in not just a, an adventure, but in a campaign. Um, they are the GM's PCs. Uh, they're at least equal to a PC in multiple areas of focus and may well be a threat to the entire group. Uh, it has a well-defined, uh, a well-defined face and a name. It potentially has a backstory. It should have a backstory and uh, maybe even their own character arc. Uh, And they could also support multiple rivals or minions in a group. So the the adversary type, whether it be one of the three, that choice doesn't have any direct consequence to power levels. Or does it? Or should it? Keith, what's your thoughts? Uh, So it certainly has... (laughs) indirect consequences Mm -hmm. on power levels uh 
like it will have an impact because the way you're building each of these things, uh, you're aiming for certain amounts of complexity with each one. And as you make them more complex, there's a tendency to increase the power levels. So mm. uh, uh, it'll be a natural result of going through this process we're about to like dive into. Mm-hmm. Uh, but like just the fact that you you know erase rival and write nemesis, that's not going to give it like a plus one on its own. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Well, I think it's important to call that out because every other step, every other step for the most part mm. it is going to have a, is going to have a direct mechanical impact on power right. levels yeah. potentially. Right. Okay. You know, I, I think it's important and I want to go back to this. I'm going to harp on this again. Mm. And I'd like to, when, when, and, 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 and Keith and Huli, I really want to get your thoughts on this too, but like the, what, what I kept coming back to, especially as I was putting together the notes for this. And I think about how I write these three adversaries when I create them, mm. if I have to describe a minion, it's nameless and it's faceless. Mm-hmm. If I have to describe a rival, maybe it's got a name maybe not but it always has a face mm-hmm. okay it, it's where it's worthy of a one scene close-up shot right mm-hmm. sure and the nemesis if it's a nemesis it always has a name and a face and a backstory it gets it gets scenes of dialogue right <laughs> <laughs> sure okay i mean how how often do you guys when when you're structuring your encounters mm. and you're creating an adventure, whether it be for a home session or a campaign, or you're writing something mm. for the foundry, mm. uh, how do you separate this out? How often do you bring nemesis in versus rivals and minions? How many is too many? Do you need to have nemesis at all? Uh, you know, how many rivals is too many? I mean, what are your what are y'all's thoughts on this? So, uh, I mean, I enjoy liberal use of minions and rivals, and I like to save a nemesis a little bit if I can. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but really, I think uh, uh, if you're any sort of encounter, be it a combat encounter, a social encounter, something else, I think uh, uh, you're free to include like a nemesis if it like if it fits what that encounter is supposed to be. Like I said before, this is a storytelling game, so my first thought is going to be like, what is this encounter, this scene? What is it supposed to, to do? What are the stakes? What, what, what are my goals? Uh, and based on that, that, that'll sort of guide me uh, to whether I want uh, this sort of like nemesis general type of character, or if, you know, a rival and some minion groups are going to get it done on their own, mm. or, you know, maybe just a rival or just the nemesis or just minions. Yeah. It's also possible. Mm. And we, we mentioned this before. I have to prepare myself if I'm going to run a nemesis. Mm. I mean, it's a, it's a heck of a lot easier, but, 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 but it's a hell of a lot easier for me as a GM to run rivals and minions. Mm. Yeah, they tend to only do one thing, so there's yeah. nothing to prepare for. You could just look at the block and be like, oh, that's the thing they do, so that's what they'll do. That's the uh, thing. And, and as we'll come to, oh, they've got one special ability. Right. Mm. You know? uh, so use it. If it, Can you use it? Yes or no? It's more of a binary. Whereas when you're talking about a nemesis, now all of a sudden the GM has choices. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and you want to, you know, I, I think you want to avoid that for GMs. They have to make, they have enough choices to make <laughs> when they're running a game. So yeah. the, the fewer you could strip away, the more bandwidth you could preserve for them to make decisions elsewhere where it matters mm. uh, the better yeah look for me I, when it comes to any sort of adventures that i've written at home or, or stuff that that i've done elsewhere um that i always think of everything in, in a movie sense 
So when it comes to a minion, I think of them as an extra. With a rival, I think of them as a bit part. Um, where they may appear on, you know, several scenes, but that's the, the absolute most. And then the nemesis is also starring or True. guest starring. That's the way that I look at them. So, and featuring. Yeah, and featuring, exactly. So you're not going to get them pop up all the time. In the three-act play, you might have them pop up maybe at the start or maybe just once in each act. Um, and that could be as not even needing stats for them. Uh, in one part, because they're not sort of, they might see them ducking away through a, a, a door, or they may be someone that is just, you know, giving a speech to a large number of people. Uh, that to me, it doesn't need stats, but obviously, as it progresses, those uh, th- those stats will become required as the PCs move through the storyline. Uh, so, uh, but minutes is the thing that I use the most. Um, uh, because even if you're only using one minion, you've got an idea of what their skill set is by using their uh, their skills. So uh, even though that they don't have any ranks in it, you know why what they may have uh, a boost. You might be able to justify a boost die for, or if they're going outside of their their spectrum, you might be looking at something like setback die or whatever else for things that they're doing. Um, but uh, rivals, I, I tend to use a lot more liberally, but uh, minions are the thing that I use the most. Uh, and then nemesis are in those once per act, I guess, for me. I'll, I'll say this, and it's kind of interesting given the fact that this sort of challenge level rating exists now, whereas it didn't for years of this system and these sort of three different rankings types of adversaries. When Edge first came out, Minion, Rival, and Nemesis almost served as like an impromptu uh, ranking of how powerful an adversary mm-hmm. might be, right? So it kind of was like the the sort of prototype of, of a challenge rating system because we're sort of tiering them already. Yeah. Uh, I don't know that that's necessarily or necessarily has to be true anymore. I, I am a firm believer that there are there's room out there for like, powerful minions just because of the way their group dynamic works. Mm. Like if you wanted to do um, a SWAT team or a Navy SEAL team of NPCs and you wanted to give them high stats and, you know, uh, make them a real threat, maybe even give them a talent or a thing, even though Mm. everything we're about to tell you moving forward after this says, don't do that. (laughs) I I think there's room for that. I think that that there's, there's a place for high challenge rating, uh, minions Hmm. and and similarly i think that there's a place for really low challenge rating rivals that are Hmm. just Hmm. specialists in one area but maybe not even that great at it Hmm. but you know they're individuals like for instance if i had a a situation where my pcs had to rescue hostages or something you know maybe i make the hostage a minion but probably i make it a rival because it's it's a not something that relies on that group dynamic Hmm. right Hmm. if you want to you can I mean, as a, and again, this is not standard practice. This is this is considered by many to be bad GMing to do this. <laughs> if you make a minion group of six minions operating as one group, like your Navy SEAL team, right? They will destroy a party. Absolutely. Yeah. 
But, uh, uh, but you know, maybe it, the SWAT team, it's a fire team of four, but these are elite dudes. So I want like, mm-hmm. I want them to have a characteristic of four or something like that. Yeah. Mm. Uh, I want them to feel like they're death troopers. They're not storm troopers. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's, and, that's, that's a really, that's a really good example. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I don't want to juggle four rivals in my initiative order. Cause that's slowing down gameplay to increase the, you know, I don't, as a GM, I just don't want to. I just want minions that are tougher. Mm-hmm. So uh, I might make some higher stat minions and call them death troopers and be like, cool, deal with this. Mm-hmm. But I still only need to do it with one initiative mm-hmm. slot. So I, I think the fact that the, this this system exists now, uh, whereas it didn't you know, five years ago or whatever, mm-hmm. I, I'm ready to let go of this idea that all minions need to be weak at this level yeah. and all rivals need to be at this and nemesis. Like the defining feature of a nemesis in a lot of ways, is that it has a strain threshold mechanically. Yeah. So, mm. so I might have a nemesis character that is in, you know, a generalist. Uh, they have like they're they're strong in that general category for uh, medicine or something that might require strain to sort of use mm. or even social, right? Because they they'll want a strain threshold, a dedicated one. But they might be not that powerful. You know, they mm. might just be like a local salesman for a, a negotiation encounter. But I might do him as a nemesis just to give him a strain threshold. Mm. Mm-hmm. Like I, I don't know. I, I that's me, you know, going away from what the party line mm. probably is for uh, <laughs> uh, books that still get created. Maybe a little radical of an idea, but I think the fact that I can assign it a challenge level frees me up to do stuff mm. like that because there I don't have to rely on that assumption of oh it's a minion group so mm. I know I can blast mm. through it. Yeah. Well, I think that that's that's certainly got merit. What you're saying there—that again, it really goes back to what we uh, what we said right at the start of this discussion with Step Zero is that what is the role of that particular character? And I know that sure. when it comes to magic, and you and I, Keith, have had discussions about this in the past, that minions can't necessarily suffer strain voluntarily. But magic right. requires that. But if you wanted to have a minion that uh, a minion group that basically like whether it be you know like cultists coven. or coven or something like that, then isn't it? It's supposed to be a bit of an obstacle, but you don't want them super powered. Give them an ability that allows them to do that. Um, sure. So uh, you know, you're cheating it. You're giving them an SQ that lets them suffer wounds exactly, instead of strain exactly. or something for the that. purposes of magic. Yeah, right? exactly. Yep. Yeah. And and yep. I also go on about, uh, and I've said this several times on the show, is if you want, I mean, ninjas are supposed to be elite, right? Um, so sure. if you've got, you know, you want to have your PCs mowing down ninjas left, right, and center, you want to have them as minions. That's their role. So why not right. give them adversary? Because that's one talent that uh, I don't think gets enough love um, is that adversary talent because you want them to be tough. If the PCs attack them, something bad might happen, whether it be, you know, part of the building falls on them or whatever. <laughs> but but realize, guys, we're, guys, what we're talking about and it was probably the wrong time to be talking about this because <laughs> what, what, we're talking about all the ways to not follow the rules. We're talking about all the ways to not follow the best practices right now. Um, this is true. Uh, this is true. Uh, you know, and, and so, but but you know, I, I think there's a, there's a point to this, and I, I think we should come back to it when we we talk about challenge ratings specifically yeah. because it does open that door to really start to play with things. True, uh, Chris. Maybe a little more on topic though. Uh, so my approach when you talk about like you want your three adjectives or whatever. Uh, 
the way I tend to back, I back into this when I create stuff for my table. Oh. Which, uh, so I, what I like to do first is, uh, uh, yeah, I need to have sort of a concept of what this thing is, like a two or three word statement, like a, you know, uh, agile ambush predator or something like mm-hmm. that. And uh, uh, But then what I'm going to do is I tend to go to the SQs and the talents first. Mm-hmm. Uh, once I've, you know, I'm going to know what type it is, but maybe not. Maybe deciding what I want my SQs or talents to be, what available talents there are, is going to help me determine what type of thing I make it. Mm. So, uh, like if I was doing, a, a, I don't know, a kangaroo, right? <laughs> Let's say I just wanted to make a kangaroo. Mm. I might decide like, oh man, well, it's going to need some sort of jumping ability, right? So I, I definitely need to to build that in there. And how would I want to make that? And would it be a talent? Is there a talent that'll cover it? Or do I need to build an SQ for the jumping? Mm. And uh, uh, once I sort of, decide that and build that now i can back into what skill ranks i know i need and what mm. characteristics i know i need to make it accomplish the thing i built it to mm. do so i kind of look at it as like especially if it's a nemesis oh i need maybe two to four interesting things for this to do each round of an encounter so i'll tend to build those things first and then back into the rest of the stats mm. that's see that's that's very interesting mm. that, and that's an interesting way to go about doing it I approach it a little different than what we outline here, but uh, well, and, well, and, but that's but that's the beauty. And truth be told, we're going to go through this step by step, like it's outlined in the EPG. Mm. You don't have to even do these steps ordinarily. Mm. It you you don't. I mean, yeah. each one is its own unique thing that it does to influence the the, the power levels. Yep. So you really can tackle them in any order if you so wish. Mm. It's true, and uh, uh, I, I don't know if this is just because. I've changed as a person since I've been like working on stuff like this as a writer, but uh, I don't think of the rules as written as nearly as holy as a lot of players and GMs do. <laughs> and I think that's because I know it's just me and the other idiot writers that I know we're the ones making them. So they're not that <laughs> sacred to us because we're just like, you know, some guys that are making it up as we go. Uh. So, so uh, uh, it's a lot easier, I think for me to just be like, ah, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do this mm. because like, I just made it up the other day anyway. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. So I, I give you all permission to, to do the same. That's just what I'm saying. All well, you, as you should. Players yeah. and GMs out there, like, give yourself should. permission. Give yourself and permission. I will say, Star Wars and Genesis do a great job of also very clearly outlining in those hard rules. They, I mean, it's said multiple places and multiple times in these books. Guys, these are the best practices we think. If you need to adjust, adjust. Mm. You know, mm. do what's best for your game and your group. That is said over and over and over again. Yeah, I think in Ready Fight, a solid like three percent of my word count is the phrase "at the GM's discretion." <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> right. Yep. So, mm. I mean, that's and that's where that's where it comes to. That's mm. where it comes to. Mm. So, okay, we we talked about the adversary type, making <laughs> that and had our meandering conversation. Step one, yay. <laughs> Well, okay, well, let's, but what, what we're going to talk about next, guys, the next few steps are pretty, pretty mechanical and pretty concrete. Mm. And we're going to have some good discussion around it. But, but here's where we start to get into the nitty gritty, okay? Mm. The next step to find step two in, in the EPG is, is characteristic assignment, okay? And this is where you assign your adversary the six characteristic values they're going to have, you know, brawn, agility, intellect, cunning, willpower, and presence. Um, and the characteristic levels they have will, will modify their power levels, okay? Now, the way I see it, there's two options available to you for this. <laughs> <laughs> All right. 
Option one is what's codified in the book, which is page 75, table 2.2-1, all right, which is to pick a characteristic array from the table. Every array has a name. Every array has example adversaries that it fits, which is fantastic. It has, and it has what what decreases or increases that array will have on the adversary power levels. Um, It's worth noting some some of those... uh, uh, arrays actually have decrease uh, like one of them has a decrease on the power level mm. right several of them yeah. several of them yes um so super easy super peasy um i don't i don't think we need to dig into that too much but i want to talk about i think more than that what i consider to be option two which is to say screw the arrays <laughs> and make the characteristics that you want okay mm. make them what you want yep this is also easy to do but it is much less easy to then associate power level adjustments to those characteristics with 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 the array it's super easy and i encourage you guys to use it because it's easy you can be like yep that's the array and that's (laughs) going to be the effective power level shift right Mm -hmm. but if 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 i don't have an array option in table 22-1 on page 75 of the epg that fits my needs for my adversary and i want to just put in the numbers i want how do I determine what the power level adjustments are going to be based on those characteristics? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, 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 and Keith, I know you have in your head, and I know there's a lot of things you can't share with us because you certainly can't give us the writing that you originally submitted or you may not wish right. to or, or things like that. I definitely cannot. Hmm. I'm pretty sure I could tell you because I'm pretty sure we covered this last show with Sam, but I can remind you that definitely like my first stab at this was breaking everything down and sort of assigning an XP value to it and then sort of getting it to it from that direction. Hmm. Uh, so that's where a lot of like the math came from. But um, I, so I, I, you know, that's about really all I can say about, about that end of sure. it. Sure. Hmm. Um, so I, I, have, I have a suggestion then. One of the things, as I really started to analyze the arrays for for characteristics, and I even went in so far as to grab various uh, stat blocks that were given power levels, okay, and I kind of reverse engineered them a bit. Mm -hmm. Sure. I I came up with a suggestion, uh, sort of of rough math, basically, a, a tabular format for how specific characteristic scores affect combat level, power level, social power level, and general power level. Mm. And what I found was, and, and Huli, we're going to have this up in, in notes, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, okay, okay. So, so this will be available to listeners in our, in our episode document. Mm. But and, and Keith, maybe you can tell me if I'm crazy here or if I'm way off base, but, but, but what I found is that combat power level, in terms of the, the, the modification of that at this stage, seemed to be heavily influenced by brawn and agility. Um, specifically, if I took the brawn and agility scores and I summed them together to get a, an additive cumulative number, a sum number, what I found was that if that sum was two or three, it actually was a minus one to the combat power level. If that sum was a four or a five, it was plus zero to the combat power level. Um, if it was six or seven, it was plus one. And if it was eight or more, it was plus two. Yeah. I mean, I think I think you're right there. I, I don't know that the, the math is precisely that. But yeah, ballpark, eyeballing it, that, that feels right mm. uh, instinctively. I, w- I would say that, and, and obviously this is the same, right, for the social power and the general power level, where social is just willpower and presence. Mm. And the general is just intellect and cunning. Mm-hmm. 
I, I will say another way to back into this is look back at the table and understand that brawn and agility are pretty interchangeable mm-hmm. uh, for the purpose of this. So if you wanted uh, a brawn one agility five character, uh, you might look at huge. That's probably a bad example because it's so weird. But mm-hmm. uh, but a lot of the times, if they're in that same like pairing, mm-hmm. you can flip them around and you're fine. It's not going to change the totals from what it is. Mm-hmm. And That's another thing you could do, another thing you could do is when you look at the power levels column, and it'll say like combat plus two, social plus zero, general plus zero. Mm-hmm. You could be like, well, I just want the two combat stats from that one. So I'm going to take the brawn and agility from there, mm. and that gives it combat plus this. And then I'll look at a different part of the array and take that intellect and cunning mm. and find, you know, whatever that does to the, the general and then, you know, find. So you could sort of mix and match these a little bit and steal the power level that works for mm. you. And that should enable you to sort of get pretty close to a mix of any stats you want. Mm. Yeah. And and I, I I I think that's fantastic advice. But yeah, I kind of I kind of found this pattern that that seemed to for the most part work and make sense. Mm. And like you like you said before, for combat power level and characteristics, it was brawn plus agility that sum. Mm. For social power level, it was willpower plus presence. For general power level, it was intellect plus cunning. And again, if 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 the if it if it's two or three summed, it was minus one. If it was Four to five, it was plus zero. If it was six to seven, it was plus one. Or if it was eight or more, it's plus two. And mm. frankly, it should be plus two. I mean, like just from a combat standpoint, if I have a if I have a <laughs> adversary with a four in brawn and a four agility <laughs> at least, right. that better be a plus two combat yeah. power level, right? Sure. Uh, one thing I would add, though, is that uh, obviously you don't want to do this because you'd only be like cheating yourself. You're the GM making these, but uh, uh, you don't want to power game your own. <laughs> power level ratings that doesn't make sense but if you were building something that had uh very extreme sort of differences like something with uh, uh a six and a one would only put you at a seven uh so like if you hit uh, a monster with like six brawn like a rancor or something mm. and only one agility that would technically only still be a plus one mm. whereas like intuitively you need to understand that uh that one having it that separated that extreme a difference it's maybe going to bump you up into that other category. There's going to be like exceptions. Yeah. And as a reminder for our listeners, uh, in Star Wars, your characteristics can go up to six, but in Genesis, they can only go up to five. Mm. Uh, yeah. But when uh, there's a difference between talking about PCs and NPCs. As well. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> See, look at you smacking me back. You're right. <laughs> You know. You're 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 absolutely right. <laughs> it's a little different. <laughs> it is. It is. It, it is a little different. And you know, uh, th- that's me being a slave to the uh, the 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 PC NPC parody mm. that was grain you know hammered into all of our heads through a decade or more of playing you know earlier systems, basically. Sure. So I that's interesting. One thing that I did want to mention very quickly about uh, the characteristics arrays, and this is um, coming from when we talked to both Keith and Sam uh, about the EPG, is that the intellect and the cutting columns are swapped as far as their values go. So yeah, yeah. and there was there was also one or two different uh, named ones where the entire rows were flipped as oh, well. Oh, really? Okay, I forget which two it was, but it was like. Smart person only has an intellect of two or something. Mm. It was that and like a different one. 
that just somehow got flipped. I forget which ones it was, but they could go back to whatever that show was. Mm, exactly. And I, can, I think we talk, Sam talks about yeah, it at length. Yeah. So, you know, you're getting the exact, this is what it's supposed yeah. to be. And I actually sent um, uh, Sam that question and he uh, did send me a bit of an Excel spreadsheet of what it should be. So well, mm. we will have that updated uh, in our show notes as well. What a nice guy. I know, right? That, that's Sam Gregor, Stuart. <laughs> All right, so now we move into step three, which is soak, defense, wound, and strain thresholds. So let's go back to basics. So we've got the soak, defense, and those two thresholds. And we're going to talk about the basics, then modify them, and what effect that has on the power levels. The amount or the size of basic soak, basic defense, and basic thresholds will not modify the power levels, okay? Uh, so, you know, you've already modified power levels based on those characteristics, all right? So your soak with uh, is going to be equivalent to your brawn. That if it's three, it's already been modified to two, three. So don't worry about that too much. But if you modify those basics further, that may well adjust the power levels, so let's go through each of these stats, what their, their basic numbers should be and how you can and should and shouldn't modify them. So let's start off with soak. So as I just said, the basic number, it equals brawn. Very simple. Um, gear may modify it. In other words, armor. That's the sort of stuff that's going to modify it. But that's in a later step with its own power level adjustment. So we don't need to worry about that. Um, th- and really, just by nature of how adversary creation generally goes in Genesis, you might decide, like, I want this character to have low brawn, but I need him to have a little bit of soak, like mm. they have some endurance. Uh, there are There is a table to do this sort of stuff, but you might also just decide, like, eh, I'm going to give him a few extra points of soak. Mm. Mm. Uh, you know, yeah. I, I think that's okay. Mm. And, we'll, and, but, and there's specific, like, power level adjustments for doing so. Which, which right. we'll, we'll, we'll get to. We'll get to shortly. So then we have defense, uh, which uh, the basic number for both ranged and melee defense is a zero. Um, so the, the gear, again, uh, may modify it further. But th- again, that's another going to be a later step with its own power level adjustment. Now, it is perfectly acceptable and actually quite common for even a powerful threat to have zero defense um so that's something to keep in mind as well um and it tends to be armored individuals or things that have a perceived type of armor that would have uh, a defense level but equally something to consider here are elements like you know phase shifting creatures um like from D, you've got the displacer beast um or you've got the uh the ethereal gaunt um, that, uh, that basically moves between dimensions and, and things like that. But predominantly, you're looking for stuff that, um, uh, you know, has some sort of defensive capability, um, you know, and, and I guess that's looking at it from a fantasy perspective. But if you really want to go and take a look at something uh, a little bit more sci-fi, uh, where you might have a mechanical beast like a robot dog or something like that that um, has some sort of 
shield, like energy shield type thing, that that can also be something that uh, can increase uh, your melee and range defense. So, you know, take take those and really, really consider them. Um, anything that sort of is going to seem like a natural type of armor or some sort of defense. Uh, consider increasing the defense ratings for your adversary. We then talk about wound and strain thresholds. Um, this this is this is straight out of the book. I, I think it's worth talking about the um, the basic wound thresholds that's recommended at this step in the in the expanded players guide. Mm. So for for a minion, the book literally has suggestions. I mean, obviously, this, so so there's no strain threshold for a minion, right? Right. But for wound threshold, the book literally suggests that if the minion has a brawn of one, you should give them a wound threshold of three. If the minion has a brawn of two or more, you should give them a wound threshold of five. Like specific. It specifically calls out those numbers. Right. Now, to Keith and your earlier point, <laughs> um, you, you can always modify that if necessary. But at that point, you really want to consider changing your power level appropriately, right? Indeed. And there's options for that, right? The table has, uh... yeah, as we'll as we'll come to when we when we yeah. modify these stats, right? <laughs> um, but but it's and it, you know, but but at a high level with no modification, yeah. If it's a minion with a brawn of one, wound threshold of three. Minion with a brawn of two or more, wound threshold of five. That's when you the get starting to, point. That's the starting point. When you get to a rival, again, no strain threshold because they're a rival. Mm-hmm. But the book recommends that they do that. That you have a starting wound threshold of eight plus brawn. Right. Which sounds a little low if you think about it. Well, it's 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 really not. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's not that low. And again, that's the starting point. You can further modify it if they're yes. a combat heavy sort of. If you want them to be able to take more attacks, eight, eight plus brawn is two hits with an average weapon with a soak right. of nothing. Mm. Okay, mm-hmm. you th- you throw soak in the mix. Mm. That's two like to three, three hits with your average weapon, mm. right? Which means that chances are that they're going to last. Oh, I don't know. Three to four rounds? <laughs> Imagine. Imagine that. Well, Imagine I mean, unless that. they get ganged up on, but like three to four attacks, right? Yeah, but, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Now, when you when you get to Nemesis, um, what the book recommends is that they have a – obviously, the Nemesis has a strain threshold. The book recommends a starting wound threshold of 12 plus brawn. Mm. Again, it's a Nemesis. You want them to be tougher, okay? Yep. An extra mm-hmm. hit. An extra hit and a strain threshold of ten plus willpower, and and the book specifically suggests you know, listen for for with a few exceptions, uh, unless unless it's like a social nemesis, you really want that one threshold to be higher than the strain threshold. Typically, you know why that is. Tell me because there isn't a soak for strain. Uh, uh, so when you're suffering wounds, that tends to get mitigated by soak. But the strain damage, it's all very different. The math is different. So the the damage is, tends to be less because there's not weapons, but there's also no soak. So they, they just the numbers are all smaller. When it comes to um, strain damage, though, like from like, blasters set on stun or something with a, a, a stun rating or stun damage, it does come Sometimes off Sometimes it does allow yeah. soak, yeah. Yeah. But when you're talking something like the, uh, the stun just stun, not stun damage. Your stun quality. Stun yeah. quality. It's coming straight off with no 
modifiers uh, based on soak at all. It just comes straight off. So in combat, yeah. Mm. But when you're talking about like social encounters, it's oh, like what absolutely. is it? Your yeah. charm check it's one plus one per net success mm. or something like yeah, that. Yeah. Something the numbers like that, are just yeah. all smaller. Yeah, exactly. Because so, uh, there's not like at least not yet until some enterprising foundry individual <laughs> screws up balance for everything. But there isn't like a megaphone you could get that like acts as a weapon in social combat. No. Although no, I definitely want to snap that up. <laughs> but uh, uh, It's like add plus two to social damage checks or whatever. Plus two, plus two strain damage with a megaphone. <laughs> that's, but, uh, that's great. <laughs> because I mean, that's how it works now. Social, other, you know, that was a big switch from Star Wars was sort of defining social encounters mm. in a similar context to combat. Yep. In Star Wars, you've got the collar amp, but, uh, but that's a side note. Love the collar amp. <laughs> oh, yeah. Love the collar amp. But it, but it has no mechanical benefit aside no, from right. you, no. can be heard, you can be heard at long range. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. now you could. You could technically build, like, weapons for social encounters because the, the structure sort of exists for it. Mm. Dude, we ideated this concept on the show where oh, yeah. we were so inspired by what you did for Unarmed Combat with Ready Fight oh. that we, we, we thought we thought about a social combat book where you would have instead of weapons, you would have uh, rhetorics or arguments. Oh, sure, right? Like the straw man fallacy. The straw man fallacy, and yeah, you could obviously only use. You only you have to equip one, and you need to use it, right? So the same general rules would apply, yep. right? right. Yep. And they, yeah, and they would it's have, got like a control skill and everything. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, a control yeah. skill would have it with special qualities that would be triggered with advantage, right? Mm-hmm. Um, dude, I, I still, I still want somebody to make that. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, it sounds like you have to. But, uh, <laughs> it sounds like uh, another project. Yes, that's just what I need. Yeah. I don't know. Um, that's a pretty good one, though. It's, it's, it's there. But okay, we, we've talked about the basics, the basic way to define soak and defense and wound and strain threshold. But now let's talk about modifying those numbers, okay, mm. which we've been beating around the bush at, right? <laughs> because this step also clearly outlines, like, what if, what if the concept that you defined back in step zero or that you're backing into uh, in the case of Keith, mm. necessitates that uh, a higher wound or a higher strain threshold, or that, like you said, Keith, yeah, they only got a one brawn, but I need them to have more soak <laughs> or you know, in- increase defense. Um, all of which, of course, at this point, is not coming from gear. Meaning these are these are natural physical enhancements or or learned experiential increases mm. that the adversary has, irrespective of their gear. Yep. Um, this is where we get into page seventy six. Uh, which has table 2.2-2 <laughs> mm. um, that, that highlights the best ways to increase those things and and uh, has several examples and what effect, if any, um, that it has on adversary power levels. Now, the, the, the book suggests that you should select up to two options from this table. Unless the adversary is a minion, then the book says <laughs> you should select zero or one, mm. Okay. Um, which that may be the rule you may end up breaking if you really want to go off the rails. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I will say like uh, the the challenge ratings themselves should sort of self adjust uh, whatever you're doing as long as you're picking it from a chart, right? Like it's going to add to the challenge rating. So, I mean, it is fine to take more. It's considered a best practice for like what you mentally think of as a minion mm-hmm. to to only pick zero or one. Like that—that that is good advice, and you should take it. But like, if you've been playing with the system for a long time, and you sort of understand how it works under the hood, mm. and you see a reason, like I was talking about my SWAT team or something like that, yep. uh, like there's like I might want to give my SWAT team dodgy and tough skin or hardy or something like that. Mm. 
not hardy. That would be crazy for a minion. But uh, uh, <laughs> but you know, I might I might want to give them two of the earlier ones. I might want them to have both a defense and something else that doesn't yeah. come from equipment. Mm. Uh, so, but equipment like, equipment solves a lot of problems, man. I mean, good yeah. equipment, good equipment will give you two soak and right. one, maybe two defense, right? And, and I would like to point out if you want to do something that isn't necessarily covered by these sort of arrays in table 2-2, 2.2-2, you can definitely go over to equipment and see how combat the the rating is changes based on like it gives you in that step not seven. Uh, it sort of tells you, like, if the armor gives plus this, then it adds this to power level, assuming that's coming from equipment. But it doesn't have to. Mm. Uh, it's basically just giving you, like, some conversion rates there for combat rating to increases in soap mm-hmm. or defense. And whether that's coming from equipment or is inherent to the character is really immaterial. Yeah. Uh, you know what I mean? So, so if you don't see something on the chart you like, you could go look at that section under equipment and uh, sort of just pick what you want. Mm. Mm. Well, look, we're not going to go through um, each of these levels. There, I mean, there's there's a whole heap of choices there, but let's touch base on a few as as well as the lessons that that we've learned from the table and uh, general NPC creations from the poor rules. Yeah, and I think the first one is that that threshold increases, mm-hmm. you know, wound or strain, should really be thought out. But, I mean, honestly, those are pretty easy ways to increase the survivability of a threat yep. um, for a fairly low increase to power level. Mm. Uh, one, one thing I'll mention about this real quick, though, is that uh, while it's not really that consequential a choice when you're talking about rivals and nemesis-type mm. characters, because oh, it yeah. may be, maybe it gives them one extra round, it can make a huge impact to minions. Huge, <laughs> huge, huge, huge. So even if you pick something, it says pick zero or one from that chart, maybe don't pick the wound threshold increases because that will change things big time. Mm. Like it should almost be a, you should probably double whatever the combat increase is if you're applying it to a minion, specifically when when it comes to wound threshold. I I didn't even think about that. And that's a brilliant and very important point Mm. because like the table says, like increases a plus five to wound or strain threshold don't affect power levels. Uh, Increase a plus 10 to either threshold will increase combat or social respectively by plus one. Um, And an increase of plus 25, it actually calls out to wound thresholds is a plus two to combat power level, Mm. which is obviously a huge deal. But that, that, that first one, like I, I would never. I mean, unless you guys radically disagree with me, I would never see a reason to give plus ten wound threshold or higher to a minion ever. No, that'd be insane because you're no. multiplying that by however many minions are yeah. in the group. But so, but, but even then, adding a plus five, which according to the table says it won't affect power levels. If I'm going to give a plus, it will five, drastically affect power. I mean, levels. God, yeah, that's like a plus one or maybe plus two to a minion at that point. Mm. It, it, it's a lot. Uh, so, so I, I would just call that out separately Cause because because I, I guess when you're looking at, at minions, you're actually looking at the the total uh, number of wounds right. that they've got, rather than just putting you know plus two to or plus five to one of them. You know, you're right. if you've got a if you've got on average anywhere between you know I think the core rules sort of suggest that you know between two and three. That uh, if you've got you start doing plus five wounds to a minion, you know you're adding fifteen, right, right, which is bringing it up in that you know the plus one coming close to that plus two to the increase to the combat 
time. Yeah, and uniquely with minions, though, is that uh, it's worse because the more survivable they are, that means they're rolling the big dice pool yeah, for longer. Exactly. So it, it really does change things mm. quite a bit. So I, I, I would just avoid it. And if you are going to do it, maybe stick to like the tough skin level one. Mm-hmm. That just gives mm-hmm. it plus two wound threshold mm-hmm. if you want to say these guys are particularly hardy or something mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. But uh, uh, yeah, otherwise, ugh, just mm-hmm. melee defense. You want to give them one melee defense, that's fine. You want to give them one increased soak, that's fine. Mm-hmm. But the wound threshold's scary. Well, and, and Huli, I think... I think you solved a bit of the problem because you you sparked a memory in me, and I'm referring to it right now. It's mm-hmm. on page 84 of the EPG, mm-hmm. um, talking about minion power levels, and it reinforces. There's a sidebar that reinforces that these power levels are calculated assuming that minions are operating in a group of three. Mm, okay, right. mm. So if you were to say increase plus five to wound threshold for the group of three, meaning the combined... Mm-hmm. Wound threshold right. increased by five. That is a lot less intense than increasing a sing- each each single minion's wound threshold yep. by five. I'll tell exactly. you the the trick there is now you've just instead of uh, changing the number of the wound threshold on a minion, you've just added the special quality. Mm-hmm. You know, you've just created and added a special quality because mm-hmm. now it's this is something that applies to the group regardless of the size of the group. Yeah. Whereas ah. if you just alter that wound threshold. Uh, now they're just going to double it or triple it or quadruple it. See, that's it, a perfect SQ right there. It's like <laughs> yeah. the total threshold of this minion group at the start of combat is always plus five higher, yeah. right? Hmm. Like that's a, oh, what a great insight, Keith. That's really great. <laughs> that's why you guys have me on. Exactly. That's why, was, exactly. why we got you exactly. on, see? <laughs> you, you know? Just something to point out as well. If you look at that table um, and it's, I mean, it's it's fairly large, I guess, is the examples so tough skin, it says minions, rivals, nemesis, armored hide. Oh, true. It yeah. doesn't it's, mention it's, minions. So if you want to use that as a bit of a guide as to what of those abilities you should be using them for, that's a good little guide. Yeah, I didn't even so, notice that when I brought it up. It definitely hmm. avoids putting minions in any of the major yep. uh, wound threshold Correct. increases. Yeah. That's, yeah. Why? Because it's a bad idea. Yeah. <laughs> that's why. Exactly. Exactly. So good on them for thinking of ahead of the problem I just discovered. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, look, the next one um, is uh, defense increases should be rare and low. Uh, and, you know, you really shouldn't ever go above a cumulative of two uh, in natural defenses, whether that's, you know, two in one or zero in another or, you know, whatever. Um, or ones in both. So, you know, but having said that, depending on your your setting, uh, there are going to be exceptions to the rule because in a fantasy setting, it just seems something in Realms of Terranoth that, that I've noticed anyway, is that there's a lot more of them, especially when we're talking about um, uh, individuals or humanoids, that their defense ratings are quite high. They can be upwards of, of between three and four. Um, but, uh, you know, changes up to a cumulative of two and defenses have no effect on combat level. Um, so uh, that's something to, yeah. to keep in mind as well. So there is, there, is one, there is one example in that table. It's actually um, camouflaged, Yep. Uh, which is plus one melee and plus two ranged, mm. which, which is a cumulative three. Yep. And that increases combat level by plus one. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, you got to remember, every time you're getting a defense, it's uh, adding a setback die right. to combat pools, right? Mm-hmm. So it's it's not quite as good as adversary, 
there's still, what is it, like a 50% chance that it's taking away successes or taking canceling out uh, advantage, right? Yeah. So uh, it's making a character harder to hit. So the reason you probably want to limit it to two is, uh, first of all, uh, because it's pretty powerful, uh, sneakily. And second of all, because depending on how many dice you have, you want to make sure you have enough setback dice physically at your location <laughs> to be able to add in uh, situations like it's foggy or slippery, you know, yeah, whatever else yeah. might yeah. be happening uh, in the situation. Yeah. You don't want to throw. But I will say, like, in a way, I disagree because I feel like there are, as Huli said, some uh, exceptions, right? Uh, I might have, like, a nemesis, like, evil wizard character that can do. I want them to uh, have some sort of like energy magical barrier uh, mm. that's just always up, right? That I don't have to like cast a spell for. Mm. This is just part of what they do. Uh, you know, I, I might just want to represent that by just giving them three or four defense mm. in, in ranged and melee, mm. right? So like a combined six or eight. Mm. Yeah, um, and that's and but I mean, and that would be definitely worthy of the of of a power level increase, right? Mm. In terms oh, of combat, absolutely. In terms of I, I'm not saying don't increase the power <laughs> level. I'm <laughs> just saying there are situations where uh, uh, a cumulative two or a cumulative three, I can see exceeding that mm. based yep. on a, a character concept. Yeah. And and that brings me to another point of where uh, that there are some there. There's also an instinct uh, where I, I, when I was building allies and adversaries, which is a Star Wars book, but it was a giant. Uh, uh, challenge to build all these different adversaries, mm. right? Especially these iconic ones, uh, where they have like you know, if you're doing I, Sterling did Palpatine or whatever, <laughs> Palpatine's going to have like all these force powers and stuff like that. Mm. Well, one of the big uh, force users I had to build was uh, uh, the Sith uh, witch, the leader of the Dathomir witches. All uh, right, yep. And and uh, uh, rules is written like I could have built you know the force powers for absorb and uh um, you know the force lightning unleashed and all that uh and i was like oh man that's so annoying why don't i just give her a weapon that's like the green lightning and why don't i just give her defense to represent the the shield and now that's a thing the gm doesn't have to look up or do it's just built Mm. into the stat block yep Mm. Yep. i I think there's times you could replace stuff since we were talking about the magic system, I, I think those magic spells are amazing for the PCs mm. and for them to be able to do whatever they need to do. Mm. But your NPCs don't necessarily have to do that. You could just sort of change the stats and say, this is why, or you could, I mean, and granted keep up with the, the adjustments that are recommended, mm. or you could create an SQ or something like that. Mm. Special qualities change everything. <laughs> Oh, that's true. That's especially helpful for minions as well, Keith. And uh, I wish I'd known that about three months ago. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, that uh, w- that you can basically just give minions a magical, what appears to be a magical attack, whether it be firebolt or, or whatever you want to call it. Um, right. And it's not a magic ability at all. Um, it's not a spell to cast that they have to look up these books. It's just one ability that they have, which is a weapon. Right, you're just describing it as a weapon yeah. instead of listing yeah. it out as an SQ mm. as a role. Mm. It's a little trick that I know I, I've taught Huli and I've taught mm. Chris Hunt and a few other people from Adventure Writing Academy that uh, uh, you want to be as nice to GMs as you can yeah. when you're when you're writing something for a for a product for like a foundry product mm. or something like that. You also want to be aware of of word count uh, for some situations when you're working for someone else. Mm. Uh, so a lot of this comes out of like, what's the most simple and economical way to display 
this ability in this stat block. Mm. And it, it might not be uh, writing it up as a spell that they could cast. Mm. It might be making it a weapon or just adding to defense passively or mm. whatever. Very true. And the last the last lesson to learn from the table, this table and these modifications is the one thing we haven't talked about increasing yet, which is soak. We see soak increases listed here, but one of the one of the the watch rules seems to be that typically soak increases beyond the base are usually accompanied by a small wound threshold increase as well. Because at this point we're talking about inherent toughness right? The, the the thick skin of a creature, the armored hide of a creature, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, now when I say, when I say small, I mean five or less, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and, and, and we can see like at least quarter of the table, a plus one soak, uh, which should go along with a plus two wound threshold has no effect on combat power level. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just kind of a nice to be there, right? Mm-hmm. Of the one to two things you're going to adjust potentially and a plus two soak, which is a very large soak adjustment, <laughs> especially before equipment's added, you know, associated with a plus five wound threshold increase is, 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 is worth a plus one to a combat power level. Mm. So. Yeah. And you, and you might decide that like, well, these characters don't wear armor or anything like that. You would do this instead. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like it's my ogre and he's got naturally thick armored skin sort of. But, you know, he's running around like the cave troll in uh, Lord of the Rings or whatever, right? (laughs) Right. He's not wearing thick armor. He just is naturally there. But, you know, don't don't make that decision before you've settled characteristics, though. Because because most of the time, if you have a creature that heavily armored, they're going to be heavy, thick, and big, and they're going to have a hella brawn. Okay? Mm -hmm. So if (laughs) if if I'm sitting at a brawn of five... And that's a soak of five. Do I really need to increase it beyond a soak of five? I mean, <laughs> yeah. maybe I do, but woof. <laughs> to be fair, like the this process is outlined in these six discrete steps, but in a way, you're kind of considering the whole character the whole time and taking yeah. a holistic approach because a lot of these things are interconnected and interlaced, and you can't just make each decision independently. You have to make it aware of what's going on in other areas and brawn. And its relationship to soak is is one of those areas that could impact mm. multiple parts of the stat block. Yeah. So before we leave this step, Huli, should we should we maybe dole out some good advice? I think we can do that. Look, when it comes to this, uh, there's there's these modifications, and, and there's a few pieces of critical advice, and some of them we've kind of already touched on, um, but uh, you know, much of this is detailed in the book. So uh, our first piece of good advice would be avoid compound defenses. Now, this is a sidebar on page 76 that you really shouldn't miss. Uh, It says avoid adding multiple avenues of toughness to an adversary. Uh, So, you know, you've got your soaking increase, you've got defense increase, wound threshold increase, and the adversary talent. We can't forget the adversary talent. It's adding potentially not just the despair, but it's adding more of those uh, those threat that are going to be taking away advantages and more of and those failure. failures, which is going to be taking away uh, the amount of damage that it does. So we can't forget to throw that into the equation, especially when you start multiplying adversary out. You know, you've got adversary one, two, three until you want to stop. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's something that you do need to take into consideration as well. 
Um, and it, it just adds complexity, yeah, right? Absolutely. When you're, absolutely. Uh, I know for me, like if it's an adversary I haven't used before, the one area I'm most likely to overlook and forget to account for mm. are the defenses because mm. they're kind of like over there. They're usually zero. Yep. And if there's a plus one or plus two, I might not see it. Mm. Uh, now, if, if I'm tracking like the adversary as well, now I'm even less likely to see the defense. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Uh, yep. Or, or think about the dodge talent or mm. sidestep or yep. whatever else it might be. You, you is- don't want to have to, as a GM, you don't want to have to like make choices when the character's being attacked, yep. probably. Because yep. make your choices when it's their turn. It's going to make your life easier. I mean, one thing on that is that I don't think I've ever seen an NPC with the dodge talent. Um, because no, but you see him with, like, parry, right? Sure, and uh, that's probably the exception to the rule there. Um, but it's still, you know, it's still painful. But you should be working that out <laughs> when you do the stat, uh, your stat block anyway. You should be well, just yeah, but, doing and, the and sums we'll for talk- them. We'll talk about this. I would never give a. I would never give a. Th- I would never ever give an adversary parry. I would give them improved parry. Yeah. Oh well. Sure. Okay. Because I don't need to give them parry. Because as we'll come to, you don't need the prerequisite. And the reason to give an adversary parry is is yeah, it's the extra defensive. But I want the ability to reflect the dang hit if that <laughs> sure. despair comes up. Right. Mm. Yeah. That's sure. what I want it there for. Mm. Mm. Sure. Mm. So avoid compound defenses. This is a great piece of of advice. The next is. When you're modifying these defensive stats, mm. when you're modifying soak and defense and thresh, your thresholds, adversary type, what you determine in step one, actually informs these defensive stats a lot more than you might think. Mm. All right. And just think about, I mean, in general, increases that you add, you, you, I mean, not always. There's going to be exceptions, as we said, but but you really want to try. Typically, your your default should be to limit those increases by adversary types. Mi- minions who work in groups tend to have, if you go into the stat blocks, individual wound thresholds of three to six. Mm. Okay, any higher than that is is rare to to never being seen almost. Okay, <laughs> so if if you're gonna if you're gonna increase the wound threshold of a minion, you still kind of want to keep it in that range. Rivals tend to have wound thresholds that are roughly equivalent to a PC. So that's, Mm. what, 10 to 15, Mm. right? Mm. And nemeses should have wound thresholds that match or far exceed the PCs. Okay? 10 to 20 is is, is my barometer. And and, and, and a nemesis strain threshold should typically, as we said, be a bit smaller than their wound threshold. But again, unless they're specifically designed for social encounters. At that point, I don't care if they have a wound threshold of (laughs) 2. You know, all I care about is having that boss strain threshold mm. that that if it's a if it's a bbeg social nemesis yeah. i'll i'll keep in that 10 to 20 range mm. you know what i mean mm-hmm. sure yeah. you got to remember like on average the average player is probably going to do when they make an attack somewhere between like 8 and 12 damage depending mm-hmm. on like the weapon mm-hmm. and the check and all that it's like an average of like 10 and then that's going to get yeah. mitigated by soaks so they're going to do like five or six damage per hit mm. and if you have a party of six you want to make sure that your nemesis isn't going to get wiped in the first round, especially if you want them to have some survivability. Yeah. So, you know, you got to sort of think in how many hits do I want this thing to be able to yeah. sort of absorb. Yeah. Again, yeah. that three to four ca- round category is what you want to be uh, allowing them to survive for. So, right. um, you know, if you've got your big dragon, you want it to have a huge number of uh, of of wounds to be able to survive that length of time. 
Um, and as we've discussed on the show as well, just because, um, you know, they have this threshold doesn't mean that they're going to keep on fighting until they get to that uh, final point before they go, oh, dear, I need to run away. You know, if you're attacking a bear, you know, the bear is basically going to run away because it has survival instincts as well. If it knows that it's it's uh, it's outmatched, it will, you know, put its tail between its legs and run. Simple as that. And to be fair, uh, that doesn't, <clears throat> that doesn't have to happen before it's defeated in combat either. No. That could be the definition of being defeated, yeah, right? It, it doesn't have to like be a dead body because you've exceeded its wound yep. threshold. Hmm. That just means it's defeated and the GM can end the scene by saying, oh, they take off and run away. Yeah. They decide they've had it. Yeah, very true. Very, very true. And and to put that in perspective, I, I look at the ancient dragon in Realms of Tyranoth as possibly the the – I mean, it, it's, it's, it's the nemesis of nemesis, right? Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, five brawn, five intellect, five willpower, fours, and every other characteristic. Wound threshold of 45. <laughs> okay. Soak of eight. Yeah. Okay. Th- that is something that, and, and it's combat level 17. That, that, that is something that is going to be rounds of challenge <laughs> for an experienced party. Yep. It's, it's there to be like fighting, you know, a battleship with, <laughs> you know, uh, a sword. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So, I mean, that's the, it's there to be a challenge that lasts multiple mm. rounds all by itself. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And talking of which, um, the big monsters and gigantic creatures is probably our, our next big point. Yeah. This is an important thing to note. Yeah. Now, so, uh, as they said in the Godzilla, uh, advertising, yes, size does matter. Large monsters and creatures are the exception to many of the rules that are in the book and should have higher wound thresholds than normal. Uh, A good rule of thumb is to use the monster's silhouette as a guide. Um, You know, generally monsters should not have a wound threshold lower than 10 times their, their silhouette. It's pretty simple. So if you've got a large creature, so, you know, you've got a silhouette of two, um, you should be looking at, um, you know, 20 or thereabouts, um, at least. And then, you know, as you go up higher, and I can't remember what the silhouette of the, uh, the dragon is. Um, I think it's, it's probably a four, four yeah, three. three or a four. Okay. So it's silhouette four. So it should have a wound threshold That's of 40. at least, of at least 40 yep. and it's 45. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. So there, there it is. Mm. Interesting. What's it, what's it's brawn, Chris? Five. Five. Ah, but well, oh, you yeah. said it's soak was seven or something <laughs> like that, right? I said, I said, uh, no, it's soak is eight. It's eight. So you have to remember, like on average, PCs are going to be doing like two points of damage to this thing when they attack it with a hit. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. And it has a bunch of, and it's probably even less because it has so many ranks of adversary. I'm sure it's going to really shrink those dice pools. Yeah, to, yeah. the it's results got, for it's, the it's damage. Got, it's got adversary two. Mm. Yeah. Um. Yeah, yeah, it's just it's it's insane. No, it doesn't have any defense. It's got zero defense. <laughs> well, that's something. need to. <laughs> that, that was nice of them, at least. You know, that's something. But uh, uh, yeah, so you're only going to be doing like two points of damage per hit, and it's 45 freaking uh, wound threshold <laughs> means that like it would take it takes uh, uh, you know 20 some odd hits mm. to defeat this thing in in most cases, unless you show up with really specific like dragon killing heavy weapon or. Mm. Uh, that might be able to help uh, use some breach, maybe, yep. 
or some Pierce well, at least. Well, I mean, and or or an army, right? I mean, <laughs> or a whole lot of people who are going to make mean, twenty. It, 20 or even even just just to just I mean if 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 I throw six uh, minion groups of four at this thing, mm. we're going to get some hits through. Yeah, you know, absolutely. Oh sure. Um, I mean it's it's but but this is this but I mean I mean the and the, I, you know I don't want to get on off on a tangent, but I mean <laughs> this stat block is so insane. And for those of you who have realms of tearing out, that's on page one ninety five. But I mean like words of unmaking. Like it can, it can do a daunting arcana check, and if it's successful, it can just take a magical item that you've got. And it's it's just mundane now, for, Whoops. forever. Whoops! Like, uh, although that's like something specific to how dragons work in Terranos. Yes, yeah. yes, it is. It it's is very, very specific. It's a, it's a very specific dragon thing in Terranos. Hmm. But I mean, even even like even the the fiery breath that it's got. We're talking sixteen damage with blast sixteen. <laughs> yeah, you know what that means to your three minion groups you were talking about. <laughs> they, they ain't lasting long enough. They ain't lasting long enough. That's, that's a minion group going away every turn. Is what <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's what you need to so. bring in your heavy vehicles. Um, so yeah, you need some ballista or something <laughs> to deal with. Anything that. using gunnery. Which, like in in a lot of lore, that's what you see, right? Yeah. It's not like some dude with a bow and arrow beating a dragon. Uh, it's a guy with a really giant bow and arrow beating <laughs> a dragon. Unless, unless it's a black arrow. <laughs> well, you know. Oh, look! I go. Uh, I go back to. Um, Oh, somebody called it uh, Rain of Beards, but it's, um, <laughs> I can't remember what it's called, Rain of Fire. That's right, with Matthew oh, McConaughey. and the Matthew McConaughey. <laughs> I love Christian that. Ben. I love that movie. Um, well, but- that's one of these. <laughs> the box office would argue yes, you're it, in the minority. I know it does. I know it does. But um, I actually ran a con module with, uh, with that years and years ago um, as, uh, um, as the template for, uh, for the setting. So, but no, I thought it was. But Chris, you bring up an important point that I don't want to forget about. Mm. And I know we're going to get to special qualities later. But when you're talking about, oh, the Black Arrow or whatever, uh, saying that, like, my crazy nemesis high level thing has a weak spot, a weakness, is a cool special quality to give it that maybe reduces the, the combat rating by one uh, or something like that. Huh? To be like, hey, if you can do this special thing. Mm. Like, maybe you have to make a daunting check or something, but if you hit, it's going to just deal this much damage or, you know, whatever, whatever you make up. No. Uh, but uh, uh, there, there's some cool things you could do that, that can maybe bring it down and provide some cool mechanical approaches PCs mm. can take mm. to defeating a, a threat. Yep. Mm. Mm. Step four. I think we've um, <laughs> discussed that stuff. We're flying, guys. We're flying. <laughs> So step four is skills. And as Chris said before, this is where we get into the thick of it. <laughs> this is, is a little bit problematic. So skills are perhaps one of the most important aspects to to define an adversary. You know, it directly impacts how they play at the table, how effective they are in doing whatever it is that they're designed to do. But too many GMs go overboard here and this is the biggest piece of advice that we can give before we talk about anything else, which is don't add too many skills to an adversary. It's so easy to, to think that if you imagine an adversary making a certain skill check with any regularity, they need to have ranks in that skill, but they don't and probably even shouldn't. So remember, the average encounter lasts three rounds. Is your adversary really going to make eight different skill checks in that particular encounter? 
The answer to that is pretty much no. You focus on what they are most likely to use. And you have to remember that adversaries can make any skill check untrained. So you've always got that option. That's a reason why that you have the six attributes listed at the top that they can always do that. They don't need a skill. They may have already foreign intellect. Do they really need to have intellect skills and list all of them? But no, it's as simple as that. If you want to do the way I think of it is that if you list the skill in the thing, you're screaming at the GM, you make this check with this. Yeah. Yeah. Nothing's there as a backup. If it's in the list, it's there because the GM should be making checks with it. Mm. That's, that's a great way to think about Mm. it. Mm. Um, With uh, you really need to try to limit the number of skills. Um, When it comes to nemesis, you should limit them to about eight when it comes to, or even less, um, if you're a rival, you should be limiting to them to around about anywhere between, uh, well, no more than four. Um, and then when it comes to uh, minions, you should be doing it less than four. Um, so that's that's normally what I do when I'm designing it. If you go any crazier than that, you're trying to get your NPC to do too much for that particular encounter. It's not a... I think this is an important part to note is that too many GMs out there treat their NPCs like they're their PC. Sure. And so as a result, they go, well, if they can do this, if they can do that, and we touched base on that. You know, we talked about that before, that they shouldn't have to be using those skills in this one encounter. What is their purpose? We discuss that in step zero. Work out what that is, then apply what skills you think that they might need, and then start paring them down. Simple as that. That's the way I like to look at it. For sure. Um, I I would also, uh, 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 when I'm I'm thinking about giving uh, my adversaries different ranks and different skills and what Mm -hmm. have you, one of the things I try to do is not duplicate efforts and skills. Mm. So like, for instance, there are a handful of movement skills among the skills list, right? There's athletics, which which can help you move Mm -hmm. using brawn. There's coordination, there's stealth, Mm -hmm. uh, there's riding. Mm -hmm. Uh, So there's like four of them, or there's probably one more I'm not thinking of, or piloting. Mm -hmm. Uh, So there's all these different movement skills. Like they probably only need one or two of Mm -hmm. those. I don't need to give them four. There's a bunch of different social offense skills. Like I don't need to give them every single one of them. I could probably pick one, maybe two. Mm -hmm. Uh, I could probably pick one defense, social defense skill between like cool and uh, uh, vigilance or whatever. Mm-hmm. So, so I feel like don't, uh, even though maybe you want the the thing to specialize, still give it a way it goes about it, mm-hmm. right? Like if I'm building a, a combat character, I'm going to probably pick melee or ranged or decide on a balance between the two. But uh, uh, I'm not going to give it like every single range skill or every single there's no reason to give it like five combat skills just because it's a combat character, mm. I guess is what I'm mm. saying. Like make a choice. Yeah. Right on. Mm. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. Mm. Now, once you've got the skills in mind that, that you want the adversary to have, if you're following the method that's in the expanded player's guide, uh, you're going to want to feast your eyes on table uh, uh, 2.2-3. This is on page 78, where you can just select one or two skill packages. Each skill package has an associated increase to combat, social, or general power levels, in some cases multiples, uh, depending on the skills in the package. And 
you know, if, if the foe is like a main character villain, a principal villain, okay, your your big bad evil guy, mm-hmm. you could even select up to three packages if it's warranted. And it's also worth noting if you do happen to select multiple packages with the same skill in them, give the adversary the higher of the two values. Do not combine them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, the the rules also call out if the foe is a minion, you should really only select one skill package. Additionally, the minion obviously doesn't get the listed ranks in the package, just those skills just become group skills mm. for the minion. Also, it's worth noting in the case of a minion, because we're dealing with group skills, not ranks, any skill package, any skill package you pick simply increases the minion's power levels by plus one instead of the listed plus increases for those power levels in the package. Mm. You know, and to reiterate what Huli just said, if your package selections add more than eight skills and it's a nemesis, consider removing some to bring the list down. Mm. And I mean, if you got setting specific skills, whether those are combat skills or knowledge or magic, I mean, consider substitutions as appropriate, mm. you know? Mm. Yep. Agreed. Pretty, pretty, pretty simple, pretty basic. <laughs> yeah. When it comes to some of these and you go through the skill package, it's easy to say, well, my character that I've got in my mind shouldn't have this, uh, but it should have something else. Try to s- stick to that. As we said before, you can just use the base ability for it. Um, and again, go back to what they're probably going to use. If you've got, for example, if you've got um, a chase through the, the streets um, and you've got a police patrol after you or a group of them in a minion group or a couple of minion groups, um, you might want to use the, the cop, the town guard down the bottom. But do you think you're going to be using them for coercion? I don't think so. Driving? Absolutely. Leadership? No. Um, you know, maybe melee, depending on the scenario, but most of the time it's going to be if they're going to do anything, they're going to probably try to shoot out your tires, in which cases you should be looking at ranged. But other than that, you don't need anything else. Um, so as Chris said, and to combine all of that, start paring them down. Uh, if, if you do want to like swap out some of the skills in an array, mm. I think it's generally going to be fine. Yep. Like, if you're like, oh, I don't want my character to have athletics, I want him to have coordination. Like, it's not going to mess yeah. up anything with your power mm-hmm. rating. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, or swapping, like, Streetwise and Survival, which are basically the same skill for different environments. Yeah. Like, it's not going to impact anything. Mm-hmm. Or, like, oh, that list of four or five movement skills or the combat skills. As long as it's the same type of skill, yeah. uh, swapping it and keeping it at the rank that the array gives it, like, you should be mm-hmm. fine. Absolutely. That's great advice. So um, our next bit of advice is social adversaries may seem like they need skill bloat, but focus on an offensive social skills. So charm, coercion, deception, leadership, and negotiation, they're all offensive social skills, while cool, discipline, negotiation, and vigilance are defensive social skills. Now, that's a lot of skills to, to basically try to cover. Um, this doesn't mean that your social adversary needs heavy ranks or, or any ranks in all of them. Uh, best practice is to put ranks in the offensive social skills for a social adversary more so than defensive social skills. Uh, this lets a party feel uh, you know, properly threatened by the foe without feeling they, they can't effectively target the foe. So that's an important thing to, to look at there. 
I would both agree and disagree with you at the mm, same time okay. uh, on that. So, like, yes, what you said is absolutely true and correct. You don't want to give uh, too many adversaries, like, cool five ranks and cool and, like, four ranks and discipline because mm. now they just can't be swayed, mm. right? But, uh, uh, but when it comes to the offensive skills, I-, I wouldn't want you to take, like, three or four of them. Like, it's really, it's maybe one or mm. two. When you're picking these these offensive social skills, you're saying something about sort of the personality yep. and the approach of this character and how they do mm. stuff. So they probably have one main way they do things and maybe one other sort of approach that they take if that doesn't seem to be mm. working. And that's generally, even for like a nemesis character, that's probably mm. it. For a minion, they probably only have one way, if, if any, right? And that's if they're a social mm. minion. Mm. Uh, for a rival, they probably only have one way, maybe mm. two. And then, you know, also one defense. Mm. Good point. Like that, that, that'd be my general approach. Yeah. To that, it. that kind of translates well when you start looking at um, rivals in particular, where they tend to have just this one, uh, they're a bit of a one trick pony because that's all that they're, they're using for that particular scene. Um, but right. also when it comes to NPCs, You've only got a little bit of a blurb, whether it be, as I mentioned before, you know, 150, 150 words, depending on what it is, that describes it. The rest of the description you can fit into their skills, their talents, right. their abilities that is really going to, uh, you know, telegraph to the reader what the the nature and the role of that particular character is. and. You know, you're right. Skills are the best way to do that. And so if you've got someone who is supposed to be charming um, but is quite deceitful, charm and deception are your obvious choices for charm being the, right. the main one. But if they were like an evil conniving person, deception might be the, the, the higher one. Um, with Or if they're just in charge, it might be yeah, leadership. Exactly, or, exactly. And that will inform the – If they're a bully, it would be coercion. Yeah. So, like you're saying something about the personality Absolutely. of that adversary. Yeah, definitely, definitely. But what if you don't want to use the packages at all? <laughs> 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 or, uh, or, or what if I want to create my own skill packages, which is something that you could do if you were running a setting, for example. Uh, if you were designing sure. a setting, you could have <sighs> some skill packages put in there for creating NPCs of your own in this particular setting. What do you do? Oh, man. I tried. I tried to do what I did with characteristics here and find some common throughput mathematical <laughs> constants, no. some, sure. some patterns. No. Um, I, I only found one thing that I, and even then, it's not constant. Mm. I, I, I found that if I, to to a large degree, combined combat skill ranks seem to equate to certain combat power level increases. Mm-hmm. Like if I look at all the combat skills, hmm. um, and I saw a cumulative like zero to two ranks that was like plus zero to combat power, a cumulative three to five ranks was plus one to combat power, hmm. um, a cumulative uh, six or more ranks was plus two to combat power, and then like with magic, like <laughs> it, it, that 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 threw magic out the window. Like like every every package that had four ranks of a magic skill automatically equated to a plus two on combat power level <laughs> so like i have no idea <laughs> sure and uh i will say like i don't really have uh much of an idea either but i will say this be- because like the version i did was very much uh 
XP focused as opposed mm-hmm. to having these pre-generated arrays, mm-hmm. right? Uh, but uh, if you think about it in terms of just from your gut, if I have a character that has, let's say, uh, four ranks in ranged as a combat skill, uh, and then I have another character that has four ranks in ranged, but also uh, two ranks in, I don't know, melee, is there really functionally a difference in the threat of those two characters, Chris? Mm. <laughs> that's that's going to be dependent on how just they from are. your gut <laughs> no but just from your gut does like would you say like oh man those two ranks of melee that i'm probably not going to use in most encounters yeah are really functionally changing how dangerous this character i is. mean yeah of, of course not oh, they're not so uh where you have like you're adding combat ranks together on a character i would say maybe uh instead just look at highest what the highest is. one mm. is that's a that's a really that's a really good good suggestion mm. actually. Um, yeah, you, you you might reapproach it that way, and 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 again, I don't really know what's in this table that way. I don't know if what I'm telling you is going to help or work at all. Mm. But I do know that when I was looking at it and behind the math, um, redundant skills, which is what I would call a, a two rank melee when they already have a higher mm. one, uh, redundant skills don't have much impact. So I, I would look at the social skills and say, what's the highest mm. offensive one? And what's the highest defensive one, and and figure it out from there. With combat, I would just find the highest combat skill and figure mm. it out. From there. Again, as we were uh, saying before about the yeah. uh, the social skills uh, for the the social skill based character, it does reverse engineer that you look at what are they most likely to be using. If they've got you know a big fat sword. Um, and they've got a decent melee, sure, they might have brawl, but that's a backup. So you wouldn't necessarily be using that to calculate anything. So that kind of, that works across both of those, uh, both of those types of, of adversaries. And I'll be honest, from a, from a design perspective, you know, having had now years of experience with Genesis, if I were to do all this again, for uh, adversaries, I would get rid entirely of the separate uh, combat skills and just have like weapon skill, mm. and, that, and that it would just apply to whatever. And then I'd have like social offense skill and social defense skill, and that would strangely be- enough, that's exactly what L five R does. <laughs> yeah, it does. Yeah, yeah it, it doesn't have to do that, but it no. does have like the level where that yeah, works exactly, exactly. But uh, yeah, I would kind of uh, approach it. Just that way, because then it's easy to swap out equipment and not have to do, not that it's hard to do, to be like, I'm giving him a sword now, so I'm just going to give him his best combat rank with the sword or whatever. Uh, But you don't even have to do that. It could just be like, whatever weapon they have, they could use it with this skill. Uh, That's what I would do if I were to rebuild it all, uh, like the whole Genesis system now. Specifically for adversaries, not players. Well, I I mean... I can see that. Although I will say I've had players who take pride, and this is not a common thing, <laughs> but they take pride in the ability to disarm and sunder. Mm-hmm. And when you when you do have a character, a threat that specializes in a particular weapon mm-hmm. sure. or a particular skill, denying them that is is a can can be a very valid encounter strategy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean that's fair. And maybe for a nemesis grade character I wouldn't yeah. do that. But yeah. but for like minions Oh yeah, for minions, rivals, psh, absolutely. <laughs> It would just it would it would take a level of complexity out that doesn't add mm. much. But I, I see your point. Certainly with the social stuff, if you could sort of figure out like, oh, well, this guy doesn't really respond to sweet talking, but might respond to being bullied based on which defense <laughs> skill uh, works, right? Yeah. 
So like I could certainly see that. And, and there's room certainly for uh, uh, special qualities or talents that you make that allow characters to make a perception check and learn like which social defense skill they have or have higher or whatever. Uh, so yeah, there's definitely ways to bake that in and make it interesting, but I, it feels right away. Like it's more of a nemesis level mm. thing. Well, I mean, that's a, that's the sort of thing that um, we see in social encounters is that you're learning their weakness. You're learning. Oh, that. And right. so that, that element can obviously be translated into a combat form that you might sure. want to learn a little bit more about rather than their background. Uh, you might want to learn what's their prowess seem to be. Are they favouring their left hand? Um, or uh, <laughs> I'm just sharing sure. Princess Bride. Or, you know, you know they just, <laughs> they're a skilled swordsman or yeah, whatever. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, you know, is that stuff yeah, that they can that's do? Fair. So, but um, having, fair. having run L5R where they do that, that is the one thing that does frustrate me about that system is that just because they've got because they, they break NPCs down a lot more than what they do in Genesis, is that they uh, you end up having, especially when you've got opposed checks, that um, they have these things which are ridiculously difficult that don't necessarily translate to what um, an NPC is all about. And it's just because they need that higher ability for this thing that they do, but it doesn't always translate to something else later on. So, uh, So, yeah. Sure. I mean, that's mm. fair. And look, truth be told, there's a ton of skill packages. Mm. There are. A ton. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's it's hard to find one that is not going to meet your needs if you if you if that's the mm. case. Mm. So, and like I said, you could swap out similar skills. So, yeah, if they belong to like the same broad category of skills, like don't go swapping charm for ranged or something like that. <laughs> like keep it fair. Yeah, absolutely. You know, be honest. Well, and and yeah, again. You're yeah. the GM and you're building these, so the only person you'd be cheating is yourself. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know. Exactly. But I mean, <laughs> it's, it's like you say, if you're swapping in the same category, like combat skills and social skills and general skills. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So, okay. I want to move on to the second to last step, which is should be, should be some interesting conversation mm-hmm. here. And this is talents and special abilities, yep. step five. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, look, picking talents and special abilities for adversaries may seem daunting in the face of sheer choice. Mm. I mean, there's, what, 75-plus talents just in the core book alone? (laughs) Mm. And that Um, doesn't talk about Android and Terranoth and Keyforge and the Foundry. And and, and the EPG. (laughs) So, I think, talking about talents, I think we do have a few things that can guide you mm. here guys mm. the first is that as we've said remember encounters typically last three rounds mm. maybe four yeah. and keith as you've sagely said during this episode if i see it on the stat block as a gm it's telling me i should be using it mm. yes so do you want your adversary to have more than two to three special tricks on their bag really mm. Is, is the it, second you, you give more, now you're asking the GM to make a choice about which one to use in this situation. Mm-hmm. And that's we're trying to avoid that. Because the GM is going to juggle three, maybe even four different stat blocks mm-hmm. in, in a combat encounter, right? Uh, maybe fewer in a social encounter. But uh, uh, because of that, like they, you just want to minimize the choices they're making. You should make the choice when you're building the, the adversary. Don't make the choice when you're in the middle of a combat mm-hmm. round. 
Yeah. Mm. I, I completely agree. And you know, if your adversary has a talent or a special ability for that matter, I mean, it should be important enough to be used at the first viable opportunity mm, during yes. the encounter. I mean, just period. Yep. Don't save and it. If, don't save it. And if there, if there's, if you don't feel there's going to be a viable opportunity commonly occurring in an encounter for it, don't have it. Just because you've seen a lion do something on uh, wild discovery or whatever program it is, you know, doesn't necessarily <laughs> mean that it's going to be doing it in this specific encounter. There is a reason right. why. Like, uh, the good example is uh, Anakin Skywalker, mm-hmm. right? Uh, Anakin Skywalker could do a lot of things, like a lot, a lot mm-hmm. of things. But unless you want a 12-page uh, <laughs> uh, stat block for that adversary, yep. you can't work them all into one thing. It's going to be like three pages long, mm-hmm. and a GM is going to spend a whole session just deciding what their next mm-hmm. turn is with that adversary. Yep. So you need to... Need to, it's almost like now that football's back, right? The NFL, sometimes a head coach will pre-script the first series of downs. Mm-hmm. Uh, think of it, think of, you know, they know what plays they're going to run ahead of time. Think of it like yeah. that. When, you, when you're selecting these talents and abilities, you're sort of pre-scripting how they're going to behave in combat mm-hmm. in some ways. Mm-hmm. Our next point is lots of talents are designed specifically for player characters. Uh, and this is a really important point, and, and some people miss out on it. And again, it goes back to what I said before, that some GMs feel that their NPCs are their own PC. So avoid talents that upgrade thresholds, defense, soak, and characteristics, uh, as well as those um, uh, in narrative ways. So, you know, defensive talents such as dodge, sidestep, defensive stance should always be replaced uh, with uh, with adversary, for example. You know, get rid of those ones. It's extra paperwork that you don't need. Even if it's a nemesis, dodge still requires strain to be able to spend it. So if you, you're spending that strain, that's another thing that you, you're asking the GM to work out. Don't use that. Adversary is a simple, simple process. And I mean, Chris, you've spoken about this X number of times on the Order 66, and certainly way back in the beginning, that adversary wasn't originally in the rules. Um, it was something that basically came through playtesting that all of these other talents aren't needed if, you've, if you replace them with a simple process of, of adversary. And it also, uh, also telegraphs the type of adversary that you're dealing with. If you've got somebody that's got, you know, one adversary, well, they're probably a lieutenant, but they have some level of importance. But if you've got somebody who's got three, they are a BBEG. There is no two ways about that. It's like another prototypical uh, challenge level yeah, almost. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, I will say there are exceptions, though. In my very own ready fight, I have uh, adversaries with uh, dodge and sidestep right. and defensive stance. And there's a reason for it. Uh, in some of the settings for ready fight, it's assuming one-on-one combat in like a cage or right. something. Mm-hmm. So now that I've unloaded the idea that a GM's balancing out five different adversaries for this big combat against six mm. players, and it's only one-on-one, I can add some complexity mm. and feel okay yeah, about it. Yeah, because you're only having to deal with one thing that you can look right. up uh, ahead of time uh, and things like that. So, uh, so yeah. Well, if a, if a player can manage one character, a GM can yeah, also a manage, GM can exactly. manage one exactly. character. Yeah. Yeah. It'd be quite and, refreshing. And at that point, it's, it's, really, it's really PC versus GM PC at that yeah. point. Yeah, for sure. 
Yeah. But, uh, you know, because of the that unique sort of situation, I felt okay with that. But I would never build them that same way if it was like a general NPC mm. for a different yeah. setting. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. You know, I also think it's important to avoid talents that introduce plot elements or modify the narrative. There's a lot of PC-focused mm. talents in that regard. You know, like know somebody uh, comes to mind. How convenient is another mm. one. Sure. Um, There's also some things that uh, – help with like crafting or constructing yeah. stuff. Yeah. Uh, most of those you could get rid of. That's if it happens between encounters, that talent doesn't apply to. Yeah. It doesn't, doesn't apply. No. They don't, they don't, they don't, they don't need mm. it. And you know, for anything that modifies the narrative, you're the GM. You can modify the narrative <laughs> how you wish. You, you any don't, way you want. Yeah. yeah any way, yeah. any way you want. You're never going to have a PC basically say, oh, I'd like to get this particular sword um, uh, made magical or something like that. Oh, but does he have the make magical? No, that's not what you're going to have at all. No. It's just going to be he's, right. he's a blacksmith. Um, yes, he probably has some negotiation. You might say, just for, to reference that to, uh, to the, the GM, that he might have something in mechanics. But really, that's about it. You know, he's a he's a businessman, and he can do certain things. And it'll it'll take a number of days. Uh, make a negotiation what? role with him. Oh yes, I can get it done within a day, no problem. That sort of thing. So <laughs> that's that's, uh, that's it. Yeah, adversaries only exist in the context of the yeah. encounter you're using them in. And while big bad evil guys might have narrative things happening between mm. encounters that you reveal the players. You're not. You don't need mechanics to address any of that. Just keep mm. it narrative in mm. that case. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So the next the next guideline we can give is I got a couple sub points to it, but the idea is that talents and special abilities, when you apply them, should be very should be restricted or or focused based on the adversary type that you determined back in step one. Mm. Okay. With very few exceptions, <laughs> minions should have zero talents. Mm. And maybe one special ability. Maybe. Yeah, I think the special abilities are a lot more common if you start dealing with, like, you're in a fantasy setting and they're, like, fairies or they're something other than yeah. human. Hmm. Yeah. And it's sort of like a species ability to set them apart. I think that tends to be in science fiction hmm. type settings is the same yeah. thing. I, I completely agree. I mean, but I, I think I think the default assumption should be zero talents, maybe a special ability. If you do give them a talent or a special ability, it it should be, of course, very thematically appropriate to your step right. zero concept. Mm -hmm. And furthermore, also, at least just in, in my experience, and I, this advice is actually also echoed in the book. If you give a minion a special ability, they shouldn't have a talent mm -hmm. and vice versa. They should only have one special thing. Yep. If they have a special thing at all, is what we're saying. Yeah. And again, this is about reducing the load of things the GM has to yeah. wrangle. Yeah. Minions are intended to be paper. Yep. Okay. They're intended to be tissue paper. And, and while combat might last four rounds, it doesn't mean your minions will. Exactly. <laughs> right. So that's with minions. Now, when you come to rivals, the rule of thumb here is that rivals don't need talents unless it's focused on their area of expertise. You, you, you don't have to give your rivals talents, and you shouldn't feel the expectation to. But if you do, it should really only be one, and it should really only be related to their area of focus. Obviously, it goes without saying, avoid giving rivals talents that require strain expenditure. Mm -hmm. That's just a bad scene for somebody without a strain threshold. Yes, they can voluntarily suffer strain, but you do really want to cut down their wound threshold with talent usage. Mm -hmm. Right. 
And then a rival can also have up to one special ability. So, you know, you know, if you want to give a special ability to a rival, that's typically common and very fitting. Um, and like you said, you, you, you have fun with it, right, Keith? You know, where you <laughs> yeah. can... <laughs> It's, um, it, to me, it's the most fun part about uh, when I get a job that's like, oh, I'm going to have to create 40 adversaries in the next six weeks or whatever. That's the the one thing that really wakes me up in the morning and gets me working <laughs> on them is like, ooh, I have this concept today. And what what's the unique thing they're going to do that's not mm-hmm. covered directly by a talent or whatever? Already. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there, there's, there's that. Um, you know, but I mean, ultimately, what that means is that a rival is really going to have like one special thing they can do, maybe two. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. If you decide to give them that talent. I mean, I would say like, just definitely don't go over giving rivals two things. Uh, whether if they're two talents or one and one, how much that matters, I don't know. But don't give them more than two yeah, things. Yeah, agree. For the yeah. most part. Completely agree. Now, lastly, when it comes to nemesis, <laughs> the, 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 the watchword here is that a nemesis should do something interesting each round. Yep. Okay. That doesn't always mean using a talent or a special ability, you know, an SQ, but it's a good idea to give them some. Um, And the recommendation to get into it is not to give a nemesis more than three talents and or special abilities total, unless they're in like the main multi-session recurring bad guy or character in a campaign, (laughs) in which case maybe you might give them four or five, right? Right. Because they're going to have future opportunities to whip them out in an encounter. Right. Yeah, if it's a if it's a super recurring character, then uh, uh, they might challenge the PCs in more than one type of encounter. It's possible, right? Like, uh, who doesn't want to see Han Solo and Boba Fett suddenly having to play Sabacc against each other? Or something? <laughs> right. Like in in a weird, un- unexpected sort of yep. encounter. Uh, so, like, it's okay to broaden them a little bit. It's also okay not to do it all at once. Uh, you might build the same character multiple different ways. I think Cooley, you sort of brought mm. this up talking about a yep. Rancor, but uh, it's okay to build uh, the combat version of a character and then build a totally separate social version of the character, even though it's the same recurring nemesis, mm. having two totally different stat blocks for different types of encounters. There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, I would call it a good practice because it allows it keeps those stat blocks clean for the type of encounter you're in mm. and using. Well, I mean, if you uh, look at if you look at um, things like um, what was that dice game that uh, FFG did um, that uh, was a combination of cards and dice and, and whatever else as well. Uh, Destiny. Oh, Destiny. The Star Wars yeah, they had yeah. multiple different versions, and I think that if you look through any of the the collectible card games uh, where Star Wars is mentioned, that there is the same character. But they've got like Luke Skywalker, um, General, um, Commander, you know, Commander Skywalker, Luke Skywalker. exactly, Skywalker, exactly. So Shit. you've got different types, and I don't think that there should be a problem um, with that. I, I think the the continuity uh, PCs or the continuity players, should I say, uh, they're the ones that have the greatest hang up on this because they've sort of said, oh, well, Darth Maul had this stats in this and now he's got this stats and it's completely different. Well, it depends on what he's being used in. Um, and yeah, I would argue that it almost doesn't matter. No, exactly. And this, the stat blocks don't exist for players to no. look at. They're for the GMs to help tell That's story. Right. So, uh, yeah, I, I'm a big advocate of the same, like if you're doing a long form campaign and you have like, oh, this is major griller and that's, that's my 
main nemesis for the party who's the woe of all their their mm-hmm. problems. Uh, I have no problem standing that same guy up three or four times. Maybe the next encounter they meet him, he has a different approach, mm-hmm. right? Because now I'm going to give him a suit of power armor instead of just the sniper rifle he was hunting him with yeah. last time. And I might build him totally mm-hmm. differently. And uh, uh, and I think that's okay. As long as I'm uh, subscribing to the same sort of, it still feels like the same character, mm-hmm. like approach-wise, and that has more to do with the narrative mm-hmm. than anything else, I don't have any problem building it. The, the key to a good adversary is that it's easy for a GM to use at the mm-hmm. table, uh, both mechanically and narratively, right? There's some hooks there that bring the character mm-hmm. to life in the write-up, which is something we haven't really yeah. covered. But uh, that is a whole topic alone, yeah, Keith. <laughs> yeah, but but we're flying through we, this so quick; it's only been a few. Years. <laughs> well, well, okay, okay. So we before we talk about actually adding talents and special abilities, we do have one more guidance piece to give. Oh, yep. sure. And that's that tiers and prerequisites don't matter. So unlike PCs, adversaries simply get to ignore tier and prerequisite requirements on talents which, uh, you know, I mentioned why earlier uh, in this segment. So if you want them to have improved scathing tirade, then they don't need to also have scathing tirade and three tier ones and two tier twos. You get away with that because it goes down to what the theme of the character is. If it's, if it's a rank talent, give them the number of ranks you want the ability to have for them. So if you want to give them parry, parry three or parry two, or whatever it is that you decide. But they don't need the rest of the other tier twos to be able to get up to that second or third tier of parry. It's not needed. It's it's superfluous. Right, yeah. A lot of those rules are there to monitor player progression yeah. uh, and keep XP expenditure in line with other avenues of mm. spending XP. So with adversaries, we don't really care about no. any of that. Not so at all. Sort of throw that all by the exactly. wayside. Exactly, exactly. So, um, yeah. so yeah, that's that's pretty much it. So, with those guidelines in mind, we can actually look at adding talents and adding special abilities, like mechanically, and then what that means for power level mm. rating. Now, simply, so let's start with talents. Simply put, take a look on page seventy nine. You got table two dot two dot two dash four, seventy nine of the expanded players guide, and that lists thirty four <laughs> <laughs> common talent selections. Many of them, advanced talents, are highly ranked, and their associated power level increases for the adversary. Okay. Obviously, this table can provide a guideline for judging the appropriate power level increases for other talents. You know, if you have other talents you want to add, you can compare them to some of the talents here, whether it's from a tier standpoint or an effect standpoint, Mm -hmm. and and use that as a a primary guideline for for what the power level increase would Mm be. Uh, but I mean, I mean, it's not, it's not a, I mean, to put this in perspective, like, like one rank of adversary doesn't even increase combat power level. Two ranks increases it by one. Mm-hmm. Okay. Which is insane. And three ranks of adversary is a plus two to combat right. power level. Well, if, if you think about how adversary works though, uh, you're, you're already rolling against probably at yeah. least one purple dice, if not mm-hmm. two, right? So the difference between a purple and a red I mean, yes, the despair's on there. That is huge if it comes up, but that's a one in twelve mm. chance. Like the rest of the dice, it's not it's not that radical a difference. So yeah. adversary one, while it adds a lot of fun because of the 
the the mercurial <laughs> nature of of the potential for a despair. It, it, like functionally on most checks, it's that's not going to mm. come into play yeah. on adversary yeah. one. Yeah. yeah. And and that's that's a that's a very good point. And 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 how how the dice work out mm. there. Um, you know, but you got you got basic stuff like like minor things that might help you generally or in combat. Like I'm looking at Animal Companion as like plus one to combat, plus one to general because you got an extra body to you know chew on something or retrieve Soak something, for you, right? <laughs> Take a hit, basically. Mm. I mean, you got stuff like like barrel roll or brilliant casting. You know, it's a it's a gives you a benefit plus mm. one to combat, right? But even in like three ranks in coordinated assault is just a plus one to combat. Dual wielders a plus one. I mean. You don't get into heavy increases like plus twos until you get into stuff like improved field commander, um, ruinous repartee, which is you know a super high <laughs> tier talent for social is like a plus two to yeah, social, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Um, so so typically speaking, even boss talent selections aren't going to. I mean, your average is going to be a plus one increase to a uh, power mm-hmm. level, if any increase at all, and even the boss talents are like a plus yeah. two, and that's mm-hmm. it. Yeah, you, the the main thing is just identifying clearly: is this a combat talent, a social talent, or a general mm. talent? Yeah. If you do that, then you're just picking zero, one, or two. Really, yeah. that's yeah. all there is to it. And there's a few choices that that affect more than mm. one thing. That's mm. true. Um, yeah. like like uh, ta- good old standboy indomitable, mm. indomitable that that increases both combat yep. and social because it applies sure. in mm. both, right? Uh, master can affect all three, mm. right? Oh, Although yeah. I would argue that like. Which skill you pick depends on which one that should really. Yeah, I, I would agree. Yeah, same with, with uh, natural. natural. Well. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I mean, I mean, like three ranks in parry is just a plus one to combat. Mm. That's you know combat power mm. level. I mean, that's yeah. That that so that's the that's the that's the mm. adjustment we're talking. About. One thing that I just want to mention this this may be something for everyone who's gone ahead already and and created a setting or that they've uh, created different things with new talents um it might be worth your while to have something like this so that uh, players can or sorry gms can use uh the talents that they've created for their supplements uh in uh, in their games to create their own npcs and things like that if they have a a bit of a, a table of, of that lists all the talents with what they combat social and general what those levels increase that by so yeah i mean that that talent uh table there is pretty economical mm. economical space wise but uh as far as like laying out stuff in a book and what mm. have you but you're going to know your talents better than like the gm trying to dissect your talents right so true, true. uh yeah it, it would i think it would be a nice thing for for people to do for sure mm. just like it'd be nice to assign the the various challenge levels to adversaries mm. that are in your product. As yeah, well. absolutely. absolutely. But you know, you don't have to. Mm. It's extra work. <laughs> but it'd be nice. Yeah. People would like it. Yeah, it gives them a reason to go and buy a product, I guess, if they know that they can use it not just in this particular supplement, but um, for their own settings or uh, own home games as well. Just thinking from a marketing perspective. So uh, No, for sure. No, it's definitely a nice marketing bullet mm. to be like it's – EPG combat rating uh, <laughs> compatible or whatever. Yep. Sure. What about special abilities? Well, much like talents, there is a table. Um, it's table 2.2-5. Two 
It always makes me feel like I'm reading law when I start going to this. Um, <laughs> when you start talking about the table numbers and whatever. Uh, and that's on page, yeah. yeah it's on page 80. Uh, and that lists 16 excellent special abilities to apply to an adversary, each with associated power level increases and examples of common creatures or threats they might be applied to. You know, everything from aquatic breathers to having natural weapons to having advanced tactical abilities. You know, some of them, like mental weakness, uh, environmental vulnerability, even reduce the power levels of an adversary the same way negative special abilities add starting XP when creating a custom species. So, uh, again, we can use this table to provide, uh, you know, use as a bit of a guideline for judging the appropriate power level increase for other special abilities as well. Is there any guidance, I guess, that we can get other than, you know, rules of thumb when it comes to this sort of thing? Uh, to, to which part of the thing, I guess? There's two parts, right? There's making special abilities, which is well. its own. That's, sort that's of. almost its own show. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so there's that. And, and then there's once you've made one, assigning it an appropriate uh, level. And again, I think it kind of works the same as uh, when you're trying to rate uh, what the talents are, right? Decide if it's mostly uh, a combat, a social, or a general thing, or if it's two or all of them or whatever. Uh, usually it's going to be one main thing, though, I would think in most cases. Decide that and then decide if it's a uh, minor you know, moderate or major and give it a plus zero, a plus one, or a plus two. I don't think anything gives plus three to a single category. No, no. no. no nothing, and, and remember, nothing these does. things are going to add up. It's cumulative, right? Mm. So uh, it, it might seem like we're nickel and diming you with a bunch of little <laughs> plus ones and plus twos. But if, you're, if you've done it through uh, not seven, but six steps, you know, it can add up to like a 17 or something like mm. that if you uh, get crazy. But yeah, you know, the, the special abilities, mm. you just, at some point, it, it comes right back to what uh, gauging the adversaries always was, mm. right? And it's, well, you just got to kind of eyeball it and know what you're doing. <laughs> uh, so despite all this work, that's still ultimately the answer for some parts of it, right? Yep. And I think that that's the case across the board from, you talk to anybody about the the design of power levels, is that it's pretty good but there is some sort of tweaking that you have to do along the way to to make it make sense because there, there's always exceptions to the rule. So, sure. um, you know, I, I guess from our perspective, all that we're trying to do is provide the means for baseline and then you can start to modify things from that. And we'll probably get on to that a little yeah. bit later as well. I look at all like a bell curve, right? There's always going to be like the extreme yeah. cases. Yeah. And most of these rules just have to hit the fat mm. of the middle. Exactly. The meat of the cases. If you're building something like this and it's covering like 80% of choices or 90% mm. of choices, if you're lucky, like you've done your job very well. But there, there's always going to be yeah. edge cases that, uh, exactly. that don't apply. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, if, you're, uh, if you think that those uh, 16 isn't enough – Go and take a look through. Uh, <laughs> go and take a look through Keyford's Secrets of the Crucible. That has so many special abilities in it. It is not funny. So uh, go and take a look at that. Really useful for do. Did they put the challenge rating increases uh, no, on those? They or not? Okay. They just gave basically how much XP that they're worth. So they're really useful in creating species and archetypes. But um, yeah, not so much the adversary special abilities. Not that I've seen. 
Um, I haven't managed to get all the way through the book, but um, it's rare, I think, for a publisher to start having their books quite that yeah. interconnected and assuming you have them yeah. all right. They kind of want to treat each thing as like you have the core book and this mm. one and that's mm. it. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Although for those who don't have Keyforge, it is worth noting that you know uh, the actual power levels are noted with every stat mm. block. Oh, yeah. for the adversary. Well, yeah, that makes sense because they did do it with the errata, as you yep. guys said, yep. and sort of yep. backdated mm. the other yeah. ones. So. so that that's heartening. It means that they'll be there for hopefully every future product that's published as well. Mm. One hopes. Um, and I'm sitting here looking at an, at an, at an Amber Drake at 14 <laughs> combat, going, oh. <laughs> so. Oh dear. There try talking to it. Definitely try to seduce the dragon <laughs> instead of fighting it. You'll have a well, better... Key forge. Um, <laughs> okay, I want to get to the last step. Mm. I want to talk about equipment. I love what was done mm. with equipment. Um, and Keith, you even mentioned at the start of this intense conversation we've been having, this epically long conversation we've been having, that that was even one of the original ideas that that was brought to you for designing this was that, you know, eh, come up with something, but we're going to have these cool arrays for equipment. <laughs> yeah, Sam definitely had a vision of this, like, leading into it, where this was sort of, he told me he wanted to decouple the, the adversaries and their equipment so people could sort of hmm. mix and match. When it comes to creating an adversary, I have always found equipment to be the most cumbersome portion of it because even if I know what I want, I've got to do some book yeah. diving because if I know what I want, I need to go find the entry. I need to find what the damage is. I need to find what the special abilities, the qualities of that mm-hmm. weapon are, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. I need to find out what, what it all is. I got, I got to look, I got to, I got to go check the description to see if there's anything I'm missing. I got to go back to the table. All right. And I, I'm flipping between pages. So and the, Genesis core isn't very helpful to you in that <laughs> regard. No, because no. it spreads all the equipment amongst like yeah. all the different settings. So. Yeah. And, and for, for good reason. I mean, for, no, for I, it's yeah. great for what it does, but for this very specific thing you're talking no, about, not. I yeah. Know. Yeah. It makes it, it makes it difficult. <laughs> so, so I, I love this. I mean, I mean, Outfitting your threat, whether this is with actual gear or natural armaments, um, the the you know claws and teeth, uh, the, the 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 weapons, the armor, the gear the adversary carries may also well increase the power levels. Um, sometimes radically, depending on what the gear of outfitting is. Um, you know, but but first and foremost, you know, you want to outfit your adversary with the equipment that fits the concept you defined mm. back in step zero. Are they a melee? Go but go back to your adjectives, mm. right? Are they a melee fighter? Are they a brawler? Are they a sniper? Are they an orator? Are they a mechanic, a doctor? And there's two options to do this that are actually outlined in the book, mm. okay? Option one is the equipment arrays, okay? And this is, again, I love it. It's so easy. Uh, there's 22 equipment arrays laid out on pages 81 through 83 of, of, the, of the Expanded Player's Guide. And each one of those arrays ha- provides weapons and equipment and furthermore, a wonderful write-up of the type of adversary that would utilize it and the power level adjustments associated with that array, okay? And it, it, it's, it's, it's multi-setting, it's generic, you know, basic citizen, manual laborer, adventurer. These were really fun to write. <laughs> Dude, like, I can only lie. imagine like heavy-ranged warrior, you know? <laughs> right. You know, and it, it's like, you know, a ballista, a machine gun, a rocket weapon. Like, it's, I mean, it's, I mean, it, it really, it really is great. This um, is one of the sections that didn't change much between what I initially did. And I think that's mostly because Sam already knew this is yeah, exactly what no, he wanted. No. Yeah. So he was able to assign it to me in a really clear and precise sort of way. 
But uh, uh, it was a lot of fun to sort of think of, like one step zoomed out, like how can I make this idea of equipment applicable to most settings people would use for Genesis? And that's a real challenge. I had to do the same thing when I did the, after this section, the sample mm-hmm. adversaries. It's like I have a laborer and a fixer. Like they're very non-setting uh, specific sort of names. They're they're almost um, unskinned. We talk about reskinning. Unskinned. These are, these uh, are yeah. unskinned, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. It, it, so it it was fun. It was a unique challenge. Something that I hadn't really been asked to do uh, in any of the the various narrative dice systems sort of products mm-hmm. that I've worked on to do something sort of this stripped down. Uh, and easy to apply to any sort of setting. Yeah. And and it shows. But I, I think some of the lessons that come through here is it really drives home how critical gear and equipment can change the threat of an adversary. Mm-hmm. How critically it can. Um, because when you get into option two, which is the, kind of like the self-determined option, which is actually outlined before the equipment mm-hmm. arrays, it's it's the most free form method. It's like, look, just give them give them the gear you want them to have. <laughs> it's one of the few places where they're just like, so here's sort of the math. Mm. Yeah, and, and that's that's what I love <laughs> about this. And it's, this is right on page eighty one. It's yeah. like, here's the math, and we can summarize it for weapons and armor. If you got weapons that deal four to seven base damage, or armor that provides plus one soak and or plus one defense. That's like, that's Mm. basic, no adjustment. But when you start getting higher on on just again, base weapons or armor, if you get to a weapon that deals eight to 14 damage or armor that is plus two soak and or plus two or two to three defense, that's a plus one Mm. to combat power level. And then when you get into like heavy weaponry, like 15 or higher on the weapons based damage or heavy armor, which is like plus three soak and or plus or four defense. That's like a plus two to your mm-hmm. combat power mm-hmm. level. And keep in mind that that weapon and the armor, those are decoupled. That's yeah. separate. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's separate. So it's, we, it's not a weapon and this armor. And that's no, no. Plus two. So, it's so, a weapon so, or the armor. Or the armor. Two. And so that means if I have a weapon that deals 15 or more damage and I've got armor that provides plus three soak, that's a plus four to my combat power level. Which is quite mm-hmm. a bit. It's insane. <laughs> right? Which explains how you get to, I mean, it's one of the ways you get to a 17 <laughs> on a, an ancient dragon, okay? But I mean, just just imagine you have a, a combat threat that's only level one, combat rating one or whatever. Yeah. If you give it these a really good weapon and really good armor, it has suddenly become a challenge level five. <laughs> yeah. Right? Which is, which is a pretty big jump. And that means you're going from uh, uh, a PC brand new out of the box being able to handle it alone to you know needing a group of uh four pcs to handle it alone or needing one pc who's got like 300 mm-hmm. xp so like th- there's a big jump just from the yeah. equipment there the first ever game of star wars i ever played when the beta came out i didn't use a pre-written adventure because it was the beta okay Right. I, we had a pre-written adventure in the beta, but I wanted to make my there, own. Yeah. I wanted to, cool. I think Sterling wrote it, right? But I, I, I wanted to make my own, so I did using the experience I had, which was none, and reading what I read. And the very first encounter, I had two minion groups of three, and I gave them carbines. Oh, <laughs> which you know, I think the base damage is nine. Right, and it's against your characters, your PCs that are just new roles, right? Brand new roles, and I had I had two PCs drop in the first round. Wow, whoops! <laughs> and and it was it was like this, but 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 they're minions, but but that's the effect. 
right. that equipment mm. has. It it makes them so much more powerful from a combative mm. standpoint. For sure. <clears throat> so what I mean, what else? What else in the math that they list out here? We've got um, weapons. This this is a big one. Weapons that can hit multiple foes or inflict multiple hits with a single mm. combat check. So auto fire and blast. I mean, that's a plus two combat power. Or right there. linked, right? Linked would apply yeah, there. True, 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 true. If you've got like the the dragon, for example, you know it uh, it has its blast of what eighteen damage, and then um, uh, has eighteen damage base. Sure, it has blast well, five or something. Okay, right? so uh, I don't I don't I know it three. I, it's actually blast oh, it? three. Right. Wow. Okay. Remind me what the reinforced quality does on armor. Reinforced. Looking for that, or- right? I definitely don't know. Off the Reinforced. Let me see. I'm looking for it. I'm looking Even for it. Even the designers look stuff up. It's, <laughs> ah, they're immune to sunder. Yes. Um, and, oh, oh, armor. Uh, weapons with reinforced are immune to sunder. Armor with reinforced. My God, I had no idea armor did that with reinforced. Armor with the reinforced. It's cortosis. It, it makes the it, it, armor with reinforced quality makes the wearer soak immune to pierce mm. and breach. Mm. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that's pretty big. Okay, because one of the next ones is that armor with the reinforced quality is plus one to combat mm. power level. Yeah, I can mm-hmm. see why. Reinforced is nasty. <laughs> and I, I will say this. It's not in this table, but if you give a weapon a uh, breach one, I would almost <laughs> give it a plus one on that as well. Yeah, yeah no kidding. <laughs> Just as a converse with what the armor reinforced mm. quality mm-hmm. does, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, so talk to me about the distinction here because there's a distinction made gear overall that adds an advantage or removes a setback from social or general checks is a plus zero to social or general power level but gear that adds a setback or excuse me adds an automatic success or a boost die to social or general skills adds a plus one i mean to me the idea is that uh if you're adding advantage you're probably just adding narrative elements true so i don't know that we really need to uh yeah uh, it's social or general yeah okay uh doesn't really have to change in removing setback again it's just not that for social in general specifically it's not that big a deal uh and even the the gear for the other one it's still only social as, in as far as the removing setback um there isn't always going to be setback and we've said this numerous times there is definitely if you haven't got at least one setback die you're probably doing something wrong or not adding a, enough of an element so the players can can take away that but there is, if you've got a, a character with an ability with, to add a boost die, that is always going to happen. There's never going to be a scenario sure. that where where they're doing that where they're serving their specific function that they won't be doing adding that uh, that boost die. So it's a good point, and there's two other points I would make as well. Uh, one, it's gear that adds advantage singular or removes setback mm. singular. If you have a piece of equipment that removes three setback, uh, that might be a different yeah. story. I might I might throw a, a plus mm. one on there. Uh, the other thing I would say is that while this is talking about gear as it relates to social and general power level, if you, I don't know, made a talent or a special quality that functioned in the mm. same way, don't be afraid to use this as like your combat, <laughs> your, your power level adjustment mm. to use these sort of numbers here. You don't. Just because it says it's gear, it doesn't yeah. matter. Like this all comes out in the aggregate mm. anyway. So uh, if you see a place where it's like, hey, if you add plus one soak, it does mm. this, or if you, you know, it doesn't matter which section yep. it's in. That's still probably an appropriate mm. uh, 
uh, alteration yeah. to your challenge level. Definitely, definitely. And then the last one listed is that, and I want to clarify this with you, a combined soak of seven or more after applying gear. Right. So is, it's talking about armor plus yeah, the natural. Yeah. Soap. Plus the natural. So, 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 I mean, like, let's, I mean, so if I, I mean. If you put armor on that dragon. Gotcha. So, so, so regardless of any other gear I've added, regardless of any naturals I've given, come hell or high water, after everything's applied, if I've got a, if I end up with a soak higher, the seven or more, I need to bump combat by mm. one more level. An extra, yeah, because it's just going to be so hard to damage that. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Mm. What additional advice do you have for those who are wanting to not want to? I mean, there's no reason to not use the equipment arrays, guys. They're mm. fantastic. But but if you if if you if you're wanting to 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 do whole cloth and do it yourself, any other advice for people doing that? Uh, you know, I mean, honestly, doing these was not as easy as you would think. Uh, <laughs> but it does generally. I mean, if you're looking at the the stuff it lists in the equipment there, like that's going to cover most of your cases. Uh, there is some equipment that functions differently or it has a real niche use or something like that. Like it's an entangler weapon or something like that. Uh, but, the, but this is going to cover most of it, most of what you might mm. want to do. Uh, and, and even if it doesn't, you could probably look at an array and find something similar. I was honestly struggling to come up with enough different arrays. Uh, because when you zoom out far enough, like if we pick one of these things, like basic melee warrior, it's the weapon isn't sword; it's one-handed defensive melee weapon. Uh, yep. You know what I mean? Or heavy ranged warrior is just heavy rapid firing ranged weapon. It's not machine gun. It's not you know rotary <laughs> laser. So it's sort of grouping all those kinds of weapons in mm. one area and saying, hey, if you pick this array, it applies for all weapons of that sort mm. of type. And, you know, if you look in a book and you're like, well, I want this specific rotary laser as my heavy weapon, it's mm. fine. You probably don't have to reinvent the wheel. You could just sub that weapon and it's going to be ballpark about what we have listed yep. in the array. So uh, I, I would say, honestly, your case, no matter how much of an edge case it is, is probably covered. The other thing I would say is there's nothing that says you're not allowed to have more than one equipment array mm. either. Specifically, I'm thinking like the offensive and defensive magic user, you could probably, if you have a uh, a nemesis sort of wizard type of thing, you can mm. take both. There's nothing that says you're not allowed and just add, uh, uh, increase the combat rating mm. for both of them. Mm. And if there's something redundant, then the lower one goes away, just like with the mm. skill arrays. So, but yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to say that there's probably, I would challenge someone to find me a legit thing where they're like, it's really not covered by the array at all. I, I think they'd be pretty yep. hard pressed. Yeah, very true. But no, this was some excellent work, Keith. Can I just say it's, um, I mean, to, to also stick within page count too, that would have been an interesting um, thing to do. <laughs> oh, uh, no, I mean, this, this, all of this got reinvented so many different ways that like, I, I don't know how much relationship this had to, Certainly, I wrote within what yep. I was assigned, but what I was assigned isn't necessarily very reflective. This book in mm. general, because it's such a toolbox yep. book, I have a feeling uh, I'm not the only guy who has a story of, well, you know, what they ended up printing is pretty different from right. what I sent them. Uh, I have a feeling that was a, that book had a lot mm. of that going mm. on. Mm. Uh, just because just of the nature of it, that's what's mm. going to happen. Because this is probably the kind of project that 
really like Sam and the Tims and Alexis or whoever else was on the team at that point in time when we were doing this. They probably should have written the whole thing in house, except for like a few sections they could sort of farm mm. up. Uh, and they, you know, I'm happy to have worked mm. on it. You know, I'm proud of my work I did. But uh, uh, this this is the kind of product that's like so crunchy and mathy and under the hood. It, it, it's something that uh, needed a lot of in-house look and a lot of like, there's things they could just do in-house that we freelancers can't. And a lot of it is sort of like, I call it rapid prototyping, <laughs> but like they can go to lunch and put it on the table the same day, go back and tweak, you know, they could do a lot of internal testing that alone yeah. freelancer just can't. Very true. Very true. Yeah. Makes sense. So we've really got um, one final thing that we have to do. Now, it's not really a step as such, but it's certainly, you know, uh, it is something that will need to be done. Uh, and that's finalizing the adversary creation. So pretty much we've, we've done it all really <laughs> at, the, at this point. But, you know, each step along the way has likely modified the adversary power levels of your new creation. You know, the, the last and final thing that you need to do to ensure that you have any adversary power levels at less than one, you should increase them to one. Um, the other thing which will basically come into play is really going to be playtesting. And we'll, uh, we'll get onto that sort of in a, in a little bit of a, of a different way. But that's really, that's it. Is there anything, Chris or, or Keith, that you'd like to add to stuff that perhaps we, we haven't touched base on or haven't missed thus far with regards to creating the uh, the adversaries? Uh, not really. I would just say that uh, we've talked about the mechanical mm. stuff, but Genesis being the game that it is, don't sleep on the narrative side. And uh, uh, for certainly for like Nemesis and even maybe some named specific rivals, it, it might be worth it to look at giving them motivations like fears mm. and flaws and strengths and all that sort of stuff. And, uh, uh, you know, maybe for some named big bad evil guys, you're going to write a little background or something like that. Like, don't sleep on that aspect of uh, uh, the adversary mm. creation because it matters. And you should have, you know, some sort of idea in step zero of what, their yeah. deal is and that's what's informing mm. your choices uh but like obviously th for the context of expanded players guide we didn't turn this section into a uh, writing class on <laughs> developing characters no, right we didn't and i, I think uh, that that is another episode that that is certainly something that we'd love you to come back on to uh, to discuss that um but um if anybody oh. wants a, a bit of a preview of of what it's like to do that um, you can always uh, become a member of the AWA, which is the Adventure Writing Academy oh, as well. That's true. Um, well worth you all. As a graduate myself, I can say that it's helped my writing to no end. It's it's. I can't thank you enough for that course. Um, so uh, so yeah, if you get the opportunity, definitely go and uh, and do that. If you are wanting to be uh, someone who uh, develops stuff for the Foundry. It is, uh, I can highly recommend it. You will learn more than you've ever learned in, in school in any way, shape or form. It's great. Um, and it's done from the context of, of adventure design and, uh, and role-playing games in general. Yeah, and fiction writing. Yeah, we have absolutely. a lot of fiction yeah. writing yeah. happening yeah. too. Yeah. But uh, uh, yeah, we've had a lot of success stories out of that program of which, Huli, you are, of course, uh, one of the mm -hmm. star pupils, right? Having written for yeah. FFG and doing all the stuff mm -hmm. you do with The Forge and then Chris yeah. Hunt. 
Uh, and then uh, Darren West has done some editing mm-hmm. for FFG. Uh, Corby Kennard, and we have a few, uh, Brett Bowen, we have a few students students that uh, uh, are working for other publishers outside mm-hmm. of Genesis mm-hmm. as well now. So it's, it's, uh, it's an exciting... It's exciting to see all of my former students uh, moving on to doing the thing that they went to class for. It's nice. But on the topic of yep. adversaries, uh, yeah, uh, I, I think in the creation of the adversaries, we've covered uh, pretty mm. much all of Absolutely. Them, right? yeah. Chris, any final thoughts about that? No, I, I, I don't think there's much more to say in this epically, massively long conversation we've had. We have gone on for about over three hours. Yeah. I, I think there's really only one thing left to talk about, and that is using the adversary power levels in your encounter planning. And I don't think this is going to be a very long conversation. Because, I mean, this is really the last step on this long journey and very long episode. I mean, we we, we got to put it into practice um, because because you know we, we've talked about creating adversaries in terms of of honing their power levels and using that, um, but who cares? Why does that matter? <laughs> it's it, an abstract number till you get to this part. It's right? an abstract number complete till you get to this part. So uh, that's what I want to understand. And Keith, you can probably explain it in about two minutes, fa- faster than we can, because sure. I mean, dude, tell us how do how does one use the power level? So I mean, basically, there are. It's a chart, and uh, you have to know first. You have to. Have hopefully you've been tracking how much XP your players have earned individually, right? So if we've been playing a few sessions and I know that I've given everybody about 100 XP after character creation, then I know. So I need that number first, is what's the average number of XP somebody's earned. And then I need to know how many uh, players are going to be in the encounter. And this is an important distinction. It's not players in the party, it's players in the encounter. That, that are going to mm-hmm. be going up against these these uh, other characters. So if, if you've split party or if you have a short group that day, like that's mm-hmm. important to know because it's going to change how all the math works out. And then all you have to do is find the appropriate XP total for earned XP and then move over to the right and find how many PCs are in that encounter. And it will tell you the, uh, uh, the, the appropriate uh, challenge rating for uh, that type of encounter. So if it's going to be a combat encounter, you know, you're going to make sure that you have, uh, if you have three different adversaries, uh, you're going to make sure that the sum total of their challenge ratings doesn't exceed whatever the number is in that box on the chart. That's really all there is to it. They're, so this is for planning power, encounter. Their power levels. Right, their power levels. The, so so the whatever the, doesn't exceed the CR. Yeah. Right. That that's That's the goal. And, and if you do that, that encounter should be pretty winnable. It doesn't mean it's not going to be, you know, some effort, but it means for, for the most part, most of the time that party of characters should win Mm -hmm. that encounter. There are some adjustments and exceptions, and there's some parts in the book that talk about that. And and maybe you as a GM just want to make things more challenging. Well, this lets you sort of eyeball and decide that. Yeah. But, uh, but that's it. That's how you use it. You, uh, you're able to, to, add those those uh, power levels together and come up with a challenge rating for that array of, of adversaries. And, uh, you know, hopefully it's, it's not too bad for <laughs> your players. And the table in question Keith is referring to is table uh, 2.2-6, which is on, That's page, the one. on page 85 of the Expanded Players Guide. Yes. 
And you'll notice there are some great sidebars and additional yeah. rating modifiers mm. on that page as well. Well, yeah, that's worth noting. I mean, because because all of this, of course, also assumes that the PCs have spent roughly the same number of XP on on combat, social, and general. Yep. capabilities overall. I mean, maybe right. you've got like one hyper combat focused character in the party, one hyper socially focused character in the party, one hyper generally focused character in the party. But in other words, you still have a balanced party. <laughs> <laughs> right. It should true out in the aggregate yeah. of all those no. players. No. Yes. Yes. I mean, but if that's not the case, you may need to make adjustments on the fly. Um, and you, you, there's a couple good suggestions for, for CR modifiers that you've got. Um, like, I, th- I found some of them very interesting. Um, if the majority of the group is armed with weapons that have a base damage of eight or more. Right. It's um, a plus one. If everybody, a, yeah. if nobody's got a pistol, <laughs> <laughs> if everybody's got that carbine or, you know, whatever, or a heavy rifle or whatever, then yeah, man, uh, that's going to be a, you can go a little bit harder then because, you know, you've got weapons that can handle a little bit more. Yeah. I mean, and you got you got several examples here that give a give a plus, should give a plus one CR in the combat encounters. I mean, like uh, there's that one. There's the majority of the group has armor that provides plus two soak or higher, or defense two or higher. Um, at least, at least not the majority, but at least two members of the party in the encounter possess a means of inflicting multiple <laughs> hits with a single attack. <laughs> yeah. So I'm guessing a lot of this came out of testing, right? And somebody like Huli's like, hey, by the way, this all breaks down when I when three of us start chucking grenades. Uh, yeah. yeah. So yeah. Um, and then the other one was there's if there if there's only one adversary opposing at least three PCs. Right, because they're gonna get chewed up quick. Yeah. Uh so even you'll notice your dragon would count yeah. in that situation, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. You know, even though he's a seventeen, in some ways he functions as a sixteen mm-hmm. if he's alone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because they're getting dogpiled on, right? They're taking every hit in an encounter. Uh, so, yeah, that's important. Uh, the minion power levels is also important. Uh, we did a lot of the math for minions uh, for their uh, power level, assuming that your minion group has three in it. I think we mentioned that earlier. So if you have less or more, the sidebar sort of explains what to do. Um, and then there's just knowing your group as well, right? Like you might if you know that uh, you have that one guy who always finds a way to one-hit your big bad evil guy, because some groups have that guy, right? You know, you, you, you might adjust that. Or if you know that you have the group where, uh, you know, everybody wants to play the, the strange, unique sort of social mm. generalist or something like that, and nobody puts many ranks <laughs> in combat skills because that's just the kind of party you have. Yeah, I've had uh, parties like that, yes. Yeah, no, I mean, you're, you're going to want to adjust that. In fact, I, I would say... Uh, you probably have an entire setting you've written for Foundry that lends itself toward that sort of play. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I can't even think about all this for familiar. It doesn't even. <laughs> <laughs> so it doesn't. You know, it, 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 yeah, it all breaks down. <laughs> <laughs> so, so there's just going to be some sorts of settings and groups and players that the better you know them, and it's also just our catch-all to be like, hey, if it don't work, it's your fault. Know your players. That's the tagline for role playing the hobby. If it don't work, it's your fault. Know your players. Yeah, it's your fault. Should have known your party better. Should have known that table better. <laughs> but uh, on the fly, that table is really helpful if you've um, uh, you know if you've got a pre written module uh, that's you know has an encounter which has three groups of you know two goblins each. Right. 
that um, if you were writing that and you were using the sort of the, the appropriate challenge rating, you may say that, well, this particular thing is designed for four players. But, um, you know, and that might be just a sidebar against each sort of encounter as if you've got a player, if you have, you know, three or less players, perhaps downgrade this particular Here's thing. Here's what and you can remove because you see the challenge yes. rating. So yeah. you can join yeah. You could yoink one rank of goblins, yeah. and that'll make it perfect for only three pieces. Exactly, whatever. exactly. So yeah, yeah. I mean, and yeah. and this is yeah, this is well, I mean, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean that that's it. Well, I mean, honestly, it's it's just the combined. I mean, all you need, all you need for the encounter is the combined power level, mm. right? Yep. And at that mm. point, the GM can figure out the number of PCs, and then all the adventure writer needs to do is say, oh yeah, if you want to make this, uh, you know, so so this is a this, this is a, a combined you know combat power level of eight. Um, you know, remove this to make it a six, you know, remove right. these two things if you want to make it a four. You know what I mean? Well, if you're listing the adversaries and, and where I would say, like, if you're writing an adventure, this is almost more important to use then than if you're writing like a setting book or something. I totally agree. Mm. Totally. Because, because yeah, here's like a, a set where you have planned encounters, right? So having a little sidebar, it says, Hey man, the, you know, each of the adversaries has their power levels written there, but also there's a sidebar that says, Hey, the total power level is this. And uh, uh, if you have more or less, you know, PCs, you could look at the table. You could kind of do that ahead of time if you're going to run an adventure. Absolutely. But I mean, like, like, for a guy who likes to write really structured adventures like I do, uh, like, I want to provide even more advice. I want to say, like, look, if you need to decrease the combined power level here, these are the threats you should remove first. Right. Hmm. right? And, and if, you, if you're going to go to that uh, length as the person writing it, you could even just be like, take this talent away from the adversary. Mm. Ooh, that's an interesting thought. Uh, mm. You know, or, or don't give them this armor; just give them regular armor instead. You know, what mm. you could you could play with it that way too, instead of removing a unit. Uh, it's up to you, obviously, but uh, in some in some situations that might be better. Yeah, an important thing to remember as well is that you've always got the blurb on the back of the adventure or uh, on Drive Through RPG that you can mention things like that, right. and I think that Chris Markham. Um, in his uh, one of his adventures for the uh, the goblin, whatever it's called, um, that it it really is the case that you, he said designed for a party of four PCs with one hundred X earned XP. Sure. So if that's been done, you've already set that expectations, and so if you've got a party of six, you might have um, uh, uh, some sort of some sort of a sidebar at the at the start to say if you've got parties of greater than this, this is what you should do, and you just list the encounters of what you should do, and it doesn't take up a lot of space then either. So that's something to consider as well. Yeah, you could be pretty economical with these sidebars; they don't have to mm. be long. They're they're going to yeah. end up looking like the minion power level sidebar, probably. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Like seventy five words or something. Yeah, man. Mm. It's uh. Hopefully, people find it useful. Uh, certainly, this last table was something that was in like the initial draft. Because my whole yeah. approach, my whole plan was to uh, assign sort of XP values, and then it's apples to apples once you have uh, 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 XP values, right? Because those kind yeah. of are equal, and that's already been accounted for balance. Mm. So. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. 
But um, one thing that I do want to mention is that uh, originally when we uh, started sort of designing the show notes for this, the Chris and I were going to be designing some NPCs. That's not going to happen um, at uh, 3 hours 30 for this segment alone. Uh, that, that's just not going to happen. But what we'll do is that Chris and I will design a, a couple of NPCs uh, for you and we'll break them down um, as we go through the process. And you can find that uh, in the downloadable uh, PDF of uh, for this particular episode actually Huli, i i think we can probably do it live on the show because i think this is a wonderful avenue to expand die casting uh, that's a good point that's um, a great point in fact i i think i'm gonna i think i'm gonna commit now i think that's a fantastic idea for those you know we we, we often get suggestions to re- review certain talents um mm. or, or certain skills in, in die casting um mm. I, I know i know we have we have streetwise waiting in the wings yep. um but if you guys have a particular threat or adversary that you'd like us to take a stab at on the show using these mm. this methodology, I think that's a fantastic idea um, mm. to do for diecasting. We could probably even do two or three during a diecasting segment. Absolutely. That sounds like a plan. Great. Great discussion. <laughs> Keith, I... I, I I get so inspired talking to you. I get so energized and your insight is fantastic. I I can't thank you enough for wasting the last three and a half hours of your life <laughs> just just jawing with us about this topic. Your 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 insights and your 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 wisdom and your advice have been very helpful to me and I sincerely hope to our listeners as well. Yeah. Oh, it's my pleasure, man. I enjoy talking. I mean, it's a thing I spend a lot of time doing, so it's uh, <laughs> often done, though, very much alone at my desk. So, yeah. <laughs> well, you mean uh, people enjoy talking about things they like doing? That's insane. Yeah, right? So <laughs> to have every now and again to have the ability to talk with other enthusiastic people about Man. it, knowledgeable, yeah. enthusiastic God. people. I think we've uncovered nice. something fascinating about human nature. You know, we should start, <laughs> we should start a method of media that allows us to record <laughs> – yeah. Groups of people talking about things they really enjoy for mm. the listening pleasure of other people. That'd be mm. nice. I think it's a fantastic it, idea. What can we call it? Uh, uh, radio? Uh, enjoy <laughs> play cast. <laughs> yeah. And everybody's yeah. getting punchy because we're three. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just punchy. <laughs> Keith, uh, thank good. you so much. No, my pleasure, guys. I enjoyed it. Awesome. And we'll have you all back very soon, I hope. Ah, you know, I'm always willing. (laughs) Yes, you are. (laughs) God, what a good discussion. Oh, it was long and grueling and delicious (laughs) and enjoyable. (laughs) But we kind of knew that it was going to get to that. (laughs) Yeah, we did. We did. Um, God, but I, I love I love having Keith on. He's so insightful, mm. and it's always great to discuss these topics. I, I I love it. Yeah, yeah. Look, I can't get enough of Keith. I think everybody knows that uh, he's a legend of a man. And yes, I'm I am a self confessed fanboy. Uh, his stuff is just so good. <laughs> I love it. Um, and secondly, he's also a really really good guy to come on the show too. So you know, <laughs> there's that. Agreed. <laughs> so Lee, I think you think we have the time maybe for a question or two. Oh, look, I think that'd be pretty good. I know, I know it's, I know it's been a long episode, but but we do have a couple questions I do think we might need to get to. Yeah, absolutely, especially one from uh, a bit of a topic from last episode. So yeah. let's get into those questions in Under the Hammer. Under the Hammer. <laughs> 
and welcome to Under the Hammer, the segment where we answer your games and rules questions about the Genesis RPG as it impacts both rules, content creation, and play. And we've got some more great listener questions this week. Uh, one dealing with a topic from the last episode uh, and a brand new one as well. So, of course, if you would like to get your questions to run to the top of the queue, just visit patreon.com forward slash Forge Genesis and become a tier two Patreon supporter today. All right, Chris, bring us our first question from someone we know very well. Quite well. This actually comes in from GM Phil via Facebook, my <laughs> my my colorful co-host on the Order sixty six podcast, and uh, right. one of the principal designers over at Studio four hundred four. And he mm. said the following: He said, "Guys, <clears throat> I'm listening to your episode on chases, and maybe I missed it. Not really sure. But how do you address the rubber band effect of forced movement during a chase? Mm. Whoever's going first triggers forced movement and moves their number of range bands. If the person going first is is the pursued." Then they pull away a considerable distance, which might prevent others in that vehicle from making attacks against the pursuing vehicle. If the pursuer goes first, they might get to engage range just with forced movement. But then on the other party's turn, that distance closes back to what it was before the round began, or at least uh, uh, close to it, depending on die rolls. I think of a situation where PCs are in a vehicle with turrets, and they're being chased by several enemy fighters. The pilot goes first and pulls away to extreme range, and the gunners in that vehicle now have to deal with a daunting difficulty instead of a potentially hard or average one. Meanwhile, once the bad guys get to go, they're back to medium range and average difficulties to shoot the PC's vehicle. All the while for the narrative. Vehicles really aren't that far apart from each other at any given time. Mm. So what do you do? I, I have opinions, but... I mean, what, what, are your, what, are your, what are your thoughts on this? <laughs> look, um, look, there's a couple of things that come into play there. One is initiative is really important. Um, the, uh, the initiative, you can act in any turn. You're not limited as to when you can move. Yes. Um, the, the pilot is the one who determines uh, whether you move first or whether you do some actions, uh, you know, whether it be fire a weapon or whatever else, uh, and then they move. Or uh, in reverse, they could move, do all their firing, and then, um, you know, everybody else can do their thing. It depends on how people are positioned in the, in the initiative. And it does make it a little bit more tactical in that regard. Uh, but look, if you look at any chase that we see on film, doesn't matter what it is, that there is always points in the chase where people basically zoom past them, but then they manage to pull away because they turn at a different angle. You know, a lot of this is still going to be narrative in nature. So this is the zone, the, the encounter zone rules are really there as a guide to allow people to have a visualization of where things are relative to the next. Um, and the other thing as well is when it comes down to working out where people are to see whether they've escaped the chase or not. That sort of thing occurs at the end of the round. Then you calculate your distances. So if you've got people who've moved and now they're beyond extreme range, for example, because they've you know floored it and they've managed to get so far away, but in the same round, that, uh, that other vehicle will then move up so it will be closer. Yes, Star Wars has the the process, and I know that we talked a lot about that, uh, where that you do your roles at the start of the turn in Star Wars, and then you work out how what the position of everybody is. Uh, but then the pilot automatically loses a maneuver 
And so that's something else you've got to calculate. And that's not how normal combat would work. And so it means that especially when trying to teach new people, it means that it works in opposition to the way that it normally does just for a specific circumstance. And I think that that would create some confusion. Obviously, you know, the best way to do it, either a chase or perhaps a, uh, a race, um, or indeed definitely a race, is to do a skill challenge. Um, and uh, you can just say that, you know, if you succeed, you close the distance. If you fail, you increase the distance or whatever it is that you want to do. Yeah. I mean, and this, Huli, this is why I'm such a huge fan of skill challenges. Um, yeah. But but not even using the core rules. No, I mean that's the thing. It's like it's like the rubber band effect can happen, but it would be it would be truly awful if you had assigned initiative orders. But you don't. The the, mm. the party has the ability round to round to de- to determine when that pilot's going to go. All right, mm. in order to mm. to optimize that distance for for Phil's excellent example for 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 mm. for example firing solutions. Right. Yep. Yep. The, the 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 caution I would give though is being a good versus a bad GM in that situation because the GM mm. also determines in what order the NPCs go. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And yep. I can I can choose to play the rubber band game, you know, and and really short that distance after the PCs did hard work um, to to maybe keep that distance you know long by having my NPC pilot go the first chance I can get them to go. Right. Yeah. Um, right. So you you know pl- play it by ear, and when it comes to initiative action, I always try to let the narrative decide those things. You know, if somebody if somebody gets popped, you know, by by a PC, they get angry and they're going to probably go first, right? Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> you know those those kinds of things. So yeah, you know, I, I think because of the fluid nature of initiative order, I think it cuts down on the potential abuse of of that situation severely but, but then obviously I, i'm the guy who's just going to run a skill challenge anyway so i'm probably the wrong person to answer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a very good question uh, mm. and thank you for asking it phil absolutely um, thanks dude. phil <laughs> yes <laughs> all right so our next question uh which i did promise that we'd get on the show is william warner yeah. who asks via Facebook, I was thinking about magic and how a caster can only maintain a single cast spell. This doesn't seem to make sense to me as a 10 XP character can maintain as many spells as a 3000 XP archmage. So my suggestion is a two-pronged solution, both involving talents. The first is a tier three rank talent that allows you to maintain one additional spell per rank of the talent, but gives a setback die per additional maintained spell. The second talent is, of course, a fourth tier rank talent that allows you to remove one setback die per rank of the talent. Mm. What are your thoughts? Okay, so first of all, uh, a caster can already maintain more than a single cast spell. They can maintain two cast spells because it only takes a maneuver to maintain a spell. Correct. And I get two maneuvers in a round. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) The disparity of power between a 10 XP character and a 3000 XP character Mm. is in this system, not as extreme as you would expect from a system like D20. Okay. So Mm. that's number one. Um, With a little bit of luck and some destiny point expenditure, Mm. uh, we've said this before, a beginner character can stand up to a 300 XP character. Okay. Mm. They can Mm. roll with them. All right, so yeah. I don't see the power disparity as an issue. Um, so William Warner, Mr. Warner, sir, I, I, I will tell you that I have play tested 
a crap ton of talents that actually for for magic directly and then reskins of magic um mm. that I've I've been writing and play tested the living crap out of talents mm. that in various forms modify the ability to maintain spells or powers okay mm-hmm. it gets broken really really fast this is just some mm. warning okay mm. because the things that you can maintain like barriers and curses and augments are exceptionally powerful capabilities um Mm. augment and curse specifically um Mm. so i would very much caution you Mm. um in terms of your talent suggestions just again based on how powerful i found those alterations to be if you're going to create a talent that allows you to maintain an additional spell, like it's, I mean, mechanically, it's not maintain an additional spell. It costs a maneuver to maintain a spell, period. Mm. Okay. Mm. You may want to introduce a talent that, uh, and, and let me tell you some of the things I played with William in my own playtesting efforts that we, we, we put out there for the community to try and break. Um, <laughs> <clears throat> we, we tested one that allowed, um, that allowed for a uh, a spell to be maintained as an incidental, like once, mm-hmm. like one spell, and then each rank allowed you to 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 maintain another. Um, it got overpowered way too quickly. The setback die, I assume, on all checks is an interesting choice. Um, but also, it became just a lot of extra bookkeeping. Um, what we found is that first of all, tier three is way too cheap. Just mm-hmm. way too cheap. If you're going to do any talent like this, it should honestly be a tier five, maybe a tier four. I don't. If you're, if you're going to penalize the player for this, I don't think you should have any talent that removes it. But mm-hmm. I will tell you the solution that we found that worked in playtesting. Okay, was a tier four talent that allowed a character when they're maintaining when they cast a spell. To spend strain and a story point mm. to maintain that spell automatically to the end of the current encounter. Yeah. And it was not ranked, and they could only do this for one spell. Mm. And um, I even think I even think we ended up removing the strain cost. I think it ended up after testing being just a story point. Okay, but it was tier four and allowed a story point to be spent and you can you can cast one spell and as as an incidental as part of the spell casting can be like, okay, this is being maintained through the end of the encounter and you don't have to spend, you know, the maneuvers on it. Um, Mm. That worked. It play tested well. It was balanced. But I mean, at that point, what you've got is the potential to have three active spells maintained. That's insane, man. The way magic works in this system. I mean, it's. I mean, you can spam spells, man. You can. <laughs> um, so I, I don't know. That's that's my advice, man. Just hard glean from some some pretty heavy play testing over the past few years mm-hmm. on a few different projects, um, yeah. including Harry Potter, um, mm-hmm. including including my psionics guide, um, <clears throat> and including my soon to be released Aegis. Um, mm-hmm. So take that for what you will. <laughs> Look, the, the other thing that uh, I just want to point out, and uh, I mean, the rules for magic are designed so that there is uh, the possibility of expansion. 
there always is going to have that. And when you have um, on the uh, the top paragraph on the second column on page two hundred and eleven, it basically says the effects of magic skill check for a magic skill check may be instantaneous or rarely permanent. So they've kind of gone well. It can actually. It may be able to be maintained. It may be able to last longer, but they're not actually sort of covered in these rules. So you well, are pretty are much open ended. Spell description type. Yeah, sure, but it's uh, and I mean for the most part, you can technically you can have four spell running in the one turn because of the way that spells are designed. Because it says oh, that. Oh, it, yeah, 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 yeah. If you, if you give up, because if you give up control, uh, that's right. If you give up control, it'll last till the end of the next turn. Yeah. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. So you can technically have more spells running. And remember, as Chris and I reiterated all the way through this episode, that it really is a case that combat is only designed for three, maybe four rounds of combat. So you're yeah. not going to be using you're not going to necessarily need to maintain these sort of things. Yeah. And if you're maybe suggesting, well, how long does light last? Well, it's you're not talking about a structured encounter then. You're talking about out of, uh, you know, where strain isn't really a big thing, that uh, if you're walking down a corridor and you want to cast light, and well, it, is there any big deal to saying, right, it works? No. You know, it's a, it's a, uh, it's a very, very easy thing to do. Um, and I wouldn't even necessarily get them to uh, to roll to do that. It's yeah. just it's a very simple thing, and it's a cantrip in D anD D. So yeah, you know where 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 I found players trying to break the system with main with maintenance is is either trying to curse multiple foes at once or trying to augment multiple foes at once. Yep. That was or multiple allies at once. That that was the big thing, and yep. <clears throat> you have to realize that if you open this Pandora's box, William, like. Do you have any idea how powerful it is to even have two PCs augmented? Mm. I mean, that's insane. I mean, an extra green to everything you roll, congratulations. It's mm. it's so freaking powerful. And Curse <laughs> is so freaking horrific. Mm. Um, you know, we, we, we said this in the Magic episodes too. Magic is very powerful. Very powerful. Okay, you will always hear me say err on the side of players. When it comes to magic, I will always tell you to err on the side of caution mm. in your design and your GMing. Yep. Okay, mm. Mm. Um, so it's my thoughts. Yeah. Mm. Hopefully that answers your question, William. <laughs> Very good answer. Yep, cool. Good questions. Good questions. Mm. Mm. Well, Huli, I believe that does indeed bring us to the end of yet another show. Indeed it does. But we'll be back with a new episode very soon. And our next episode, we hope, cross fingers, will have a range of special guests to help us tackle a rather wondrous time with a review and QA episode for Keyforge Secrets of the Crucible. It's going to be awesome, as the Forge is going to welcome back two special guests, specifically Keith Kappel, again, who was one of the freelancers on the project, <laughs> and none other than lead developer on the project himself, the man, the myth, the legend, Tim Huckleberry. 
We certainly are. And of course, we still are accepting questions about Secrets of the Crucible, but we want more. So if you have any questions or topics related to Secrets of the Crucible or any other questions about Genesis or gaming for that matter, we want to we want your questions. We want you to contact us. And how can they do that, Chris? You can email us at forwardsgenesis at d20radio.com or post it up via one of the many social media platforms where we have a dedicated area calling for questions, including Facebook, <laughs> Twitter, YouTube, and the FFG forums. Just search for at Forge Genesis. And also, I've been seeing, as always, always do, some great conversations on the D20 Radio Discord channel. And of course, truly dedicated conversations with our Patreons on our very own podcast Discord server. And we would love to hear from you all. Don't forget that you can also join the even larger discussions in the D20 Radio Facebook group where we nerds congregate to cross-pollinate. And don't forget to give us a like or follow us as well on any of our social media sites um, or your favourite podcatcher. You can also drop us a review um, there as well as uh, on iTunes, Spotify, um, and even the the newly released uh, Amazon Music. And we're also on iHeartRadio, which is really cool too. Uh, you can also visit us on our website at forgedenesis.com. All right, Chris, well, that's a wrap for us. Thank you all for listening, and we hope you will join us next time as we continue to explore the Genesis RPG. I'm GM Hilly. May your triumphs be many and your despairs be few. And I'm GM Chris, wishing you peace, love, and good game. And if you've made it this far, thank you. Uh, <laughs> it was a long episode. but <laughs> So thanks again for joining us. And remember, The Forge Podcast, helping you hone your gaming edge. The Forge at Genesis Podcast is a proud member of the T20 Radio Network. For more information about the network, visit www.t20radio.com. The Forge is a fan-generated podcast. All the information provided on the podcast, the social media, and related website is not affiliated with Fantasy Flight Games or any of their licensors. The content of this podcast remains a property of the Forge at Genesis RPG Podcast and is intended for educational and informational purposes only. The Genesis role-playing game, Genesis logo, Genesis Foundry, content, and all material remain the property of Fantasy Flight Games. All products available on the Genesis Foundry website remain the property of their respective companies and individuals. For more information about the Forge at Genesis RPG Podcast, visit www.forgegenesis.com. Thank you.